Hi. Hi. So, um, what's this book about? You didn't read this one either? Well, I was gonna, but I uh, accidentally read something else. What? Vogue. I hated the book, all right? I have no idea what it's about, and the writer was clearly on drugs when he wrote it. I mean, it just, it went on and on and on like it was written in a total hurry. If I handed in something like this, there's no way I'd get a good grade on it. I mean, it's boring and it's unorganized. And I only read 30 pages of it anyway. Well, that was passionate, albeit entirely misinformed. Who dares follow Miss Kelly's lucid analysis? It's required reading. With Tom and Stella. Episode 8, Persepolis, Book 1, The Story of a Childhood, by Marjan Satrapi. I'm the master of the Awful, Mrs. Nasrin. Is everything all right? No, it's not all right. At school, they gave this to my son. They told the boys if they gave their lives and died fighting, they would go to paradise and get in with this key made of plastic. They told him that in paradise, they would eat like kings, surrounded by women, and live in houses made of gold and diamonds. By women? Well, sure, he's 14. He's at that age. I've suffered a lot. I raised my five children with blood, sweat, and tears, and now they want to take my oldest son from me with that phony key. My whole life I've lived by religion's rules. My whole life I've prayed, I've worn my veil, and I've obeyed. And for what? How can I have faith anymore? It's me. Did you hear the news? They arrested the Roshanese. They busted in on them and found alcohol in playing cards. Why are you covering your head, Mrs. Nasreen? For your husband, of course. That's how I was raised. That's what I was taught. Just bring your son to me. I'll speak to him. Don't worry. Thanks to my parents, Mrs. Nasrin's son never went to the front. Between the constant fear of bombings, the regime's repression, and spying neighbors, we tried to lead a normal life.
Stella and Tom. This is a podcast brought to you by the Two True Freaks Internet Radio Network. This ain't your mother's book club because this podcast really just pulls and rips and (laughs) goes into all the sorts of details you never wanted to know about any book that we decide. We choose one book each month. And we take a very thorough look if you couldn't figure it out by all those adjectives and verbs that I just used. And we decide whether it is worth its reputation, whether that reputation is positive or negative. It's my turn. I've suddenly realized that I'm going to be all the even episodes, I guess, unless we do a special. So here we are with an even episode, and I'm leading it. My name is Stella. And I am joined, as always, by the mullet himself tom hannerys hi stella (laughs) hello the mullet yeah i decided i looked at your little image there and i thought wouldn't he look attractive with the mullet and then i decided horrible with the mullet (laughs) i think when i had hair my hair was like way too kind (sighs) of goofy and curly it'd be like that sort of yeah no i don't i didn't have straight hair so it would have been that that oh, really bad line. sort of Italian guy curly mullet, yeah. Do you think you'd look like Pennywise the Clown? No. <laughs> okay. I mean, what? he's frightening to behold. I just want No, to... I, I think I think the closest that I would have looked like in terms of hair if I had like really let it grow out and just kind of back when I had hair would have mm-hmm. been John Belushi uh-huh. from Animal House. Mm-hmm. So, you know, that's – which is not exactly something to aspire to. Yeah. So. I understand that. Well, uh, how, how am I? Uh, yeah, you're always yeah, the Yeah, how are says, you? Well, how are you? Uh, so I always wait for that. Well, this weekend I was visited by a unicorn. The unicorn's name is Celesta Bell Bethabel. And I tried to interact with said unicorn, but I was told I was not pure of heart and then shunned. So it didn't work out very well. But very beautiful, had a purple body, a pink mane, and a yellow horn. I was dazzled by its beauty. But I was disappointed to not be welcomed amongst its company. Tom? I'm so sorry. (laughs) Why do you pause like that? You're pausing again! (laughs) Oh my goodness. Is this going to be a long night? I hope not. (laughs) You pause? I'm so sorry. I'm so sorry the unicorn just rejected you like that. That's very, very sad. You're not a comforting friend at all, frankly. You're one of those people I... that taps other people on the shoulders and goes, there, 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 there. And that's your idea of comfort. <laughs> <laughs> that's, there, there. Yeah. There, yeah. there. I did want to mention to people who might be around New York City, the Big Apple, or if you're planning on taking a trip, that they there is currently a revival of the Glass Menagerie, and it's starring Sally Field as the mother, Amanda Wingfield, Jill Mantella, yes. As uh, the brother Tom, Finn Wittrock as our gentleman caller, and Madison Ferris, who has uh, muscular dystrophy, which I think is pretty awesome, actually, as uh, Laura. So sort of true to life, I think, for her anyways, and I think she probably adds a new dimension to the character. Apparently, it's a very interesting production, and I guess the characters or the actors come out through the audience. The house lights are on for a great portion, so you're almost like in the house with the characters. But I just thought I would mention that. It's running for a short time. I think it might be out 
in uh, July. Sometimes they just do quick productions like this. So if you find yourself on Broadway and want to see Glass Menagerie, there you go. Cool. Cool. Somebody I somebody I am friends with on Facebook recently posted – I think they went to see it because I saw a picture of the Glass oh, Menagerie. Okay. I saw okay. Sally Field. I don't remember who it was. And then somebody else, just to, just to kind of go back to the, our, last, our last conversation mm-hmm. – Somebody else who I went to college with recently saw uh, Dear Evan Hansen. <gasps> yes. Oh, it made me think of you. Oh, so. my goodness. So good. Yeah. So so there you go. I thought you were going to say, going back to our original conversation, that someone saw a unicorn. No. Yeah. No. No. I didn't see any unicorns. <laughs> Sorry. That's too bad. Yeah. <laughs> well, as I said above, before all the awkwardness there of Tom trying to comfort me and my sadness, we are going to be covering Persepolis, and I specifically wanted to do book one. We could have, I guess, done two of them, but I thought mm-hmm. that perhaps it's best to do one in order to get as thorough of a look into it as, as we could, rather than skipping over and, and not giving it its due regard. Before I talk a little bit about it, because there's a lot of history with the country itself, with Iran, mm-hmm. as well as this book, I want to introduce a new segment. Now, Tom has no idea what the segment is, and I'm sure he's sweating right now and patting his um, his mullet-like hair with um, his handkerchief. And I don't know if he's going to do it when he does it. But basically, this is called Emoji Title. And this all started because on the Twitter. Well, actually, first of all, Tom was talking about me on the Twitter, sort of behind my back, even though I saw it and I knew it was about me and he didn't name me. But he said that he gets confused when people text him emojis, that he doesn't know what I'm talking about, which is basically me because I'll just randomly send him a cat, for instance, and he has no idea what I mean by that. But I just send emojis for funsies. So I decided to send on the Twitter. I said, Tom, what is this? And I sent a snake and an elephant. And I ask you people, in what other context would those two emojis be together? Unfortunately, Tom took a very long time. And then I gave him a hint, and I had a crown and a little boy. And he was like, what is that, the little king? Or he said, the boy king. That's what it was. And then it all came together because, of course, the it was supposed to be the snake eating the elephant kind of thing. You can't really do actions. But anyways, that was supposed to be the little prince. So... We'll see if this works out. But I thought, wouldn't it be fun to see if we could come up with emojis for the titles of our books before we actually get into the, the meat of it? So for Persepolis, this is actually a hard one to start with. I think that's... So you want to start with Persepolis? <laughs> I know. The Little Prince was rather easy, I think. And even The Glass Menagerie, I sent that to Tom, though he was also confused about that. I sent a unicorn, and I sent a girl, and then a handicap sign. And then I sent an old lady and a young man, and that was like The Glass Menagerie. So Persepolis was a tough one. I, what I would do with it is uh, I'd have a young girl. And then I'd have a plus sign, and then I'd have a mosque, and maybe a knife by the mosque. But that's okay. a little confusing. But because of the Islamic Revolution and everything, um, yes. I didn't want to get too violent, but that's as best as I could do. But in what other circumstance would a girl in a mosque be together, potentially? So that's as best as I could do with the emojis that I have. I do have a man with a turban, but I didn't really – I felt like that wasn't the best one. So as far as I can do, I would say a girl plus a mosque plus a knife. How would you make Persepolis in a in a? Are you like <laughs> looking through your phone right now? I am actually. Yeah. I think that's actually really good. I don't think I could top that. To be completely honest with you, okay. yeah, I'm I'm looking. I I this is this is a tough one because it's such a serious. 
It is, yeah. Uh, a serious book. Like, if it were Romeo and Juliet, I think that would be pretty uh, – <laughs> we could have some serious fun with that. But no, no, The Moss of the Knife, yeah, because it's it's very much a um, – yeah, that, that that represents this well because it's, it's, it is so cloaked in its, mm-hmm. in, in its historical context. Yeah. So, yeah, that makes sense. There you go. And just for FYI, I have an Android and Tom has, you know, an iPhone. So if this does continue, No, no, we, we have the same phone. Oh, we do? I have a Samsung Galaxy oh. S phone. Oh, okay. I, for, well, I have a Samsung, like, off-brand Galaxy. It says Galaxy. It's like a JP something something. But, yeah. But it's basically. an Android phone. Yes, yeah. yes. So I, oh, okay. So we, I thought you had it. Okay. Yeah, my wife has an iPhone. Okay. I was going to say because sometimes you might have emojis I don't have. But that's our new segment, or at least segments that will occur on the Even Number podcast. But if you have any ideas of how to create Persepolis with emojis, please let us know by writing to us at requiredreadingcast at gmail.com. Oh, yes. there you go. Okay, that's probably the happiest we'll be this entire show. I know. <laughs> no, there are some good ones. So, First off, of course, we have to talk about our personal history with the book. So what is uh, your personal history reading and, I guess, investigating Persepolis? This is my second time reading Persepolis. Mm-hmm. Uh, my first time was about two years ago. I was doing a professional development session at a curriculum fair that my school district has. I was doing a session on comics in the classroom. So I went to our local library and and listeners, Stella and I have the same local library because we live Mm -hmm. in the same area. Mm -hmm. So I went to the Northside Library, hit their two graphic novel shelves because there's one in the adult section and there's one in the teen room which is where my son has been going lately oh, to find to read. And I'm like, wow, you're no, 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 no. You're still nine. <laughs> Do not grow up. Do not grow up. Uh, it's not like he's t- checking out anything, you know, like inappropriate. It's just like, you mm-hmm. know, I'm not ready for you to be a teenager anyway. And I just basically rated, you know, for, for a display for, for the thing. And I had heard of Persepolis. I had heard of Persepolis because of the uh, Academy Award um, nominated animated film Mm -hmm. as well as some of the controversy that had been surrounding it uh uh, uh, in the past and uh it was one of the books i picked out because i was like well people know what this is so i can put this on display and it was among maybe four or five of those books that i actually sat down and read as a result of getting them out and then i and i finished book one and then i went and checked out book two it enjoyed both of them checked out book one again again for this and um I had a lot of – a fair amount of knowledge of the Iranian Revolution of 1979, but from a decidedly American perspective. Right. It happened in my lifetime, but in I was two years old in 1979. So I have very little to no – really to no memory. I actually have no memory of anything involving – like it would have you mentioned Iran in 1979 to so most people in this country who know anything about it, and they will talk about the hostage crisis uh, and yeah. the Iranian hostage crisis and and Carter and Reagan and stuff. And I have I I have a decent amount of knowledge about that because of studying it, but I don't remember. I don't have any really clear memory of it. And then um, I do remember Ayatollah Khomeini. Mm-hmm. Because he was one of the very often put on TV quote bad guys that you would see back in the eighties, kind of up there with like Gaddafi and stuff. And uh, and he died in eighty nine. 
he died. He died in the late eighties, early nineties. I, I, I seem to remember. So, um, yeah. But other than that, uh, uh, that was so. It was first read a couple of years ago. This is my second time reading it, and um, I've enjoyed it both times. I felt like I got more out of it this time than I did the first time. Yeah, and this is perhaps either the second or third time that I've read this particular one. I actually, in my second year at UVA, took a 200-level English literature course, and it was realism in literature, and this was one of the books that we read, along with Ethan Frome, I remember reading, (laughs) and The Alchemist, and Glenn Gary, Glenn Ross, and I missing anything plus some some poetry and everything and i've read this was the only one that was assigned in particular so of course with any college course you really delve into it so i think i appreciated it a great deal looking at the minutiae and and sort of um the images obviously i was taken with it because it was a graphic novel i have read the second one i even own the second one i own this first one as well but i'm not as taken with it uh i'm not sure why that is uh perhaps part of the reason is i find just looking at the cover I think that the little girl is really cute um, and I think that her innocence and in trying to understand what's going on around her is very endearing uh, and sort of mm-hmm. marching around and shouting things and wanting to go to protests and things like that uh, so this is yeah like I said second or third time as I started reading I was like oh man I forgot how much I like this and I do I really enjoy this uh, which I guess that's giving away what I think but I just think it's really masterfully done the images as well as the words and and putting this hard series of events and uh, this hard period in time you know from a child's perspective on paper I think is is really wonderful Uh, not to say that the second one is not worthwhile I just I think I prefer this first one which is uh, great but they are a package deal of course the second one being the story of a return so she's older Mm -hmm. because we leave her at the end of this spoiler having gone away and then she actually returns back so (sighs) yes yeah I seem to remember feeling the same way about the second one where mm-hmm. I enjoyed it, but not as much as the first, mainly because of the fact that she was much older. Mm-hmm. But then again, like I said, it's been a couple of years, so I, I, I might go and read the second one just for the sake of, of reading it again. Mm-hmm. Art Spiegelman's Mouse was published in a similar manner. Mm-hmm. Where there's um, – now, I have that that book in the complete edition – but there's a Mouse 1 and a Mouse 2, and they were published right. several years apart in very much the same mm-hmm. same way, um, where Mouse 2 is a continuation of, of the story. Uh, so it's um, – yeah, and it's widely available too. Absolutely, yeah. Yep. And then we'll get into sort of the audience and perhaps who should read it because this has also found its, itself on a, a banning, a banning list. A list of banned books. It's not anymore, but it had been. It has found itself on the American Library Association among uh, a number of other uh, – or in partnership with a number of other organizations, mm-hmm. among them the National Council of Teachers of English, the Comic Book Legal Defense Fund, etc. Yeah. Has, publishes a l- annual list of banned and challenged books, and uh, this has made that. And in fact, um, at least what I said, you – for for reference sake mm-hmm. in, in whatever segment we're going to do here is the CBLDF's case study page about Persepolis because right. it has been challenged num- numerous times, especially within the last uh, 
like five or six years actually. Mm-hmm. So. And then the one you sent me was uh, taking place in Chicago. Uh huh. The right one. Okay. Yeah, Chicago yeah. was the big controversy. That was back in what yeah. 2013, I think. Yeah, we will certainly discuss that because I have a question regarding the banning specifically of this book, uh, mm-hmm. because. I think it makes, you know, not, I wouldn't ban it, but I would say it made some valid points about um, why you would be cautious in letting, you know, younger audiences read it. But I think a bigger question sort of lurks behind why it was banned. But it's interesting because I sometimes get copies of those little CBLDF. Is that what it is? Yeah. Uh, with my mail order comics. <laughs> they like pop in all the time. Like, there it is again. And I was flipping through because I this one had Ms. Marvel on the cover who is a Muslim American teenager who's a superhero as well. And they were interviewing the writer, G. Will Wilson, who is Muslim. And uh, she had referenced Persepolis, and she was talking about sort of the connection between the two and the fact that, you know, people were a little nervous about Ms. Marvel, and some people still have problems with it, but hey, look at Persepolis. So so I thought it was interesting that she mentioned this as, as she was being interviewed. But we do have to talk a little bit about uh, <laughs> the history mm-hmm. of Iran as well as the history yes, of we do. this book in particular. And I will say that I feel like I'm not as well-versed in this particular period of time in history. I do remember Ayatollah Khomeini and learning about him in, I believe, my freshman year of high school. So it's been a while. I feel like I haven't had much schooling on this uh, particular nation uh, and, you know, the politics and things like that here and there. I'm sure I must have learned about it in Western civilization, but I remember that teacher not being uh, the best. So I will recommend, because Tom sent it to me, and I watched it today, and I thought it was amazing. Uh, Rick Steves does, how would you describe it? Like, not really touristy, but he, like, he goes to a country, and he really immerses himself yeah yeah it's a travel show it's Mm -hmm. um it's the the show is called it's on it's on pbs um and if you get the pbs channel create it is regularly run there it's called rick steve's europe and it's it's a travel and travel guide show with a little bit of history and stuff and he'll give you travel tips and where to go and what to do and stuff And, and rick he's a he's like one of those travel experts like he publishes tours and books and things like that and he did a I think it, it the show's usually at half hour, so he did like an hour long thing mm-hmm. on um, on Iran, mm-hmm. and uh, and I had recommended it because it was it was one of the most insightful programs I've ever seen mm-hmm. about the country because he really did look at I felt I felt he really looked at it from a very objective point of view where he mm-hmm. went in with a very open mind and was like I want to find out like this country and these people mm-hmm. and 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 show it to an American audience in a way that's just incredibly straightforward. Absolutely. And he's done that with a number of other countries that I had never even thought of, considered, hey, mm-hmm. what's there to visit in, like, you know, Bosnia and things like that. So right. really, really, yeah, and, really and fascinating show. I appreciated the empathy with which uh, he approached the whole subject because there were certain times where uh, at one point he saw – the propaganda and the large murals and everything, and he said, "Why well, I was offended by a few of them, I understood, you know, the deeper meanings of them, and I also saw dot, 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 which is definitely, you know, I think when you're reading 
anything really from other cultures or trying to understand another culture, you have to approach it with empathy because we're not going to be in the same belief system, but you have to understand or try to understand why they would be doing what they're doing. And I think that's something that on my part anyways, I struggle teaching or having my students approach subject matter, you know, because I'm a foreign language teacher. And uh-huh. it's it seems to be increasingly difficult because I feel like my students are rather self-centered and, and very much American, that they can't pull themselves outside of that and look at other cultures and try to understand. Now, some of them, I don't want to pigeonhole all of them because my upper-level ones are actually pretty good about that. But, you know, we, we do, like, human sacrifice with the Gauls. And, of course, you know, that's horrible. But then we also take a step back and say, well, what would be the benefit of this? Why would they be doing this? And try to understand it from their point of view. So I think empathy is just something that you really need to develop and have when you're when you're doing this sort of thing. And I appreciated that from Rick Steves. So all of that to say, uh, I do recommend that you watch that. I thought it was very interesting and engaging. And while Tom called it a travel thing, which I – a travel – well, the, the program's general yeah. purposes. Yeah, I like would say it's not like he's going around saying you need to eat at this kebab. Oh yeah, yeah, yeah. You yeah. know, it's like the culture and and everything like that. So he's not pushing a specific place on you, mm-hmm. but he is like uh, if he's if he's in a more Western country like France or England, it's here are some of the customs or he'll give you actual travel tips. Like you know, do you have to tip this restaurant? In fact, I think he did like a whole two or three episode series yeah. on basics of travel, mm-hmm. how to navigate public transportation. So it was very, very practical. This was more – it veered almost into like doc travel documentary type of thing, but he didn't insert himself too much in the way that say like an Anthony Bourdain or somebody gotcha. uh, uh, does with his shows. As much as I love Tony Bourdain, sometimes mm-hmm. Tony Bourdain allows himself to become too much the center of the tension mm-hmm. on his shows. Okay, well, with all of that, I did want to read the introduction that Marjan wrote, at least the introduction of the history of Iran and, and sort of all the phases that it went through. And then I'll give a little bit of background of the book itself as well as the Iranian revolution and or Islamic revolution. I guess it could be one and the same. And then we'll get into the actual book. So this one takes perhaps more background than we've been doing with some of these. So that this is why I was nervous about does, the whole does. thing. <laughs> so this is from Marjan. In the second millennium BC, while the Alam nation was developing a civilization alongside Babylon, Indo-European invaders gave their name to the immense Iranian plateau where they settled. The word Iran was derived from Ariana Vahio, ah, which means the origin of the Aryans. These people were semi-nomads whose descendants were the Medes and the Persians. The Medes founded the first Iranian nation in the 7th century BC, and it was later destroyed by Cyrus the Great. He established what became one of the largest empires of the ancient world, the Persian Empire. In the 6th century BC, Iran was referred to as Persia, its Greek name, until 1935 when Reza Shah, the father of the last Shah of Iran, asked everyone to call the country Iran. Iran was rich. Because of its wealth and its geographic location, it invited attacks from Alexander the Great, from its Arab neighbors to the west, from Turkish and Mongolian conquerors. Iran was often subject to foreign domination. Yet the Persian language and culture withstood these invaders. 
The invaders assimilated into this strong culture, and in some ways they became Iranians themselves. In the 20th century, Iran entered a new phase. Reza Shah decided to modernize and westernize the country, but meanwhile a fresh source of wealth was discovered, oil. And with the oil came another invasion, the West. Particularly, Great Britain wielded a strong influence on the Iranian economy. During the Second World War, the British, Soviets, and Americans asked Reza Shah to ally himself with them against Germany. But Reza Shah, who sympathized with the Germans, declared Iran a neutral zone. So the Allies invaded and occupied Iran. Reza Shah was sent to exile and was succeeded by his son, Mohammad Reza Pahlavi, who was simply known as the Shah. And in 1951, Mohammad Mossadegh, then Prime Minister of Iran, nationalized the oil industry, so this caused some problems. In retaliation, Great Britain organized an embargo on all exports of oil from Iran. In 1953, the CIA, with the help of British intelligence, organized a coup against him. Mossadegh was overthrown, and the Shah, who had earlier escaped from the country, returned to power. The Shah stayed on the throne until 1979, when he fled Iran to escape the Islamic Revolution. And so this is where we pop in because Persepolis is taking place during the late 1970s. Yes. Specifically in the capital city of Tehran, in, uh, which is the capital of Iran. So it's undergoing some major political changes. And we it's known as the Iranian Revolution, but it can also be known as the Islamic Revolution. And this whole revolution gains popularity because... The Shah seems to have lost some support from citizens. And it was sparked by a group of Islamic fundamentalists that were just disgusted by the modernized culture that the previous ruler had adopted. And they feel like basically the support for Western ways, they were sick of all of this. So they wanted to be done with the Westerners. So they remove, this ends up removing Shah Mohammad Reza Pahlavi. And then... Now we are led by a Shia cleric named Ayatollah Ruhollah Khomeini, and he attained political fame because of his radical positions against the governing Shah's rule, and he believed that Western countries such as the U.S. had seized the power of the country and simply used the Shah as a puppet. So people are liking this guy and what he has to say. So it's somewhat violent because Khomeini is pretty aggressive, and now it's a theocracy, so the mosque and the state are entwined, so different from the U.S. where we have church and state separate. Well, I, could, I can jump in here really quickly sure, yeah. with, what most, with what most Americans associate with mm-hmm. it, even though it's not really it's, – it's mentioned in here, but it's not really covered. And, and if you um, – <clears throat> and I'm pretty sure that like American U.S. history classes in high school might gloss over this anyway because it comes toward the end of the year and you know you're trying to cover in terms of your test and stuff. But most people who are familiar with Iran in the late seventies are familiar with the Islamic Revolution, and they're familiar with the fact that um, the Shah had been sent into exile. And at one point, and I might be I might be mixing my facts up a little bit or my timeline a little bit, but at one point he was very very sick, and one of the only places that he could get treatment was the United States and the United States took him in and this angered the Khomeini and the uh, the the leaders of the revolution as well as many of the uh, the young uh, students because there were quite a number of the uh, there were quite a number of people who were very very young of that the young radical uh, type and even more than they were at the West at America and they stormed the American embassy in Tehran and took hostages. 
and those hostages uh, remained in captivity from 1979 until literally 12 noon on January uh, 20th or 21st of 1981. Why? Because they remained in captivity until one minute after Ronald Reagan was sworn into president. Carter had been brokering a deal for their release. There was a botched rescue mission, and then um, Carter bro- brokered was brokering a deal with release to uh, to release them. But the Iranians, the just the tension was so great and the hatred was so great. The Iranians deliberately waited until after Reagan was sworn in to release the hostages. The hostages came home in January of '81, and um, it was. It's often covered as part of a look at the Carter administration as well as um, some of the roots of our some of our foreign policy toward the era uh, toward that area or like you know some of our modern foreign policy toward the area as well as something that we will look at as we go through this book um, after that the war between Iraq and Iran because we would essentially as a country as a government officially side with, Saddam Hussein and Iraq through the 80s because Iran was, you know, the enemy of my enemy is my friend. Mm-hmm. What Reagan, what, what the scandal that rocked the Reagan administration in 1987 was called Iran Contra, that the fact that they were selling arms for hostages in Iran was involved in that deal. And I don't know the whole, it's probably too complicated into, but Iran has always has had been seen since 1979 as sort of quote, an enemy of the United States. Things have cooled and warmed over the years here and there. There's always some sort of um, back and forth. It depends on who is in power and, and and since then. But as far as from a United States foreign policy perspective, and when you hear Iran and you hear what we know of about Khomeini, that's kind of where you're coming from. But like I said, one of the cool, one of the great things about this book is it gives you a completely different perspective. Yeah. No, and that wraps up anyways. Yeah, the Iran and Iraq war, which I did want to mention. Yeah, because that was after the revolution, and it seemed to bring the people together because obviously the people in Iran wanted to stop the Iraqis, but I think in the end also public appeal started to go down perhaps. It started off high and then it went lower because the the war just kept going on. But this title, Persepolis, is used in reference to the Persian Empire's ancient capital city, Persepolis, uh, which is now Iran's Takhti Jamshid. And this ancient city was the center of the Persian Empire until Alexander the Great conquered the area, burned it, and demolished it to utter ruins. And this could be a connection to the destruction of Tehran during the Islamic Revolution, uh, which ended up leading to a rise in civilian deaths. And so with all of this, this is all the context. And so with this first book, Marjan is writing of her life as a young girl growing up during the revolution. And I opted not to talk too much about her because, I mean, this book is, it's her yeah, life. So I memoir. felt like, yeah, I felt like it would have been a little redundant to be like, let me tell you about Marjan. And then, you know, here we have all these uh, things that we go into detail about. So there you go. That's the background. Right. Thanks for adding that. Hey, no problem. I'd like to thank Wikipedia personally because uh, they had wonderful plot synopses and so I decided to uh, use this and it goes by section or by chapter depending on how you look at this book which or graphic novel which is also a question I have. So 
get ready <laughs> for us to knock your socks off with uh, this plot synopsis. So we start with the first section, which is the veil. It's an introduction to Margie and a child's view of the Islamic Revolution. So Margie is 10 years old in 1980, the year after the Islamic Revolution, when girls were obliged to wear the veil and segregated by gender, where she previously attended co-ed, and secular education was abolished. She struggles with the meaning of the veil coming from a religious but modern avant-garde family. By the age of six, Margie felt that she could correct what she saw as injustices in her world by becoming a prophet. She discusses Zarathustra, the first prophet in Iran, and the traditional Zoroastrian holidays she enjoyed with her family prior to the revolution. Section 2, The Bicycle. Margie observes the oppression by the Shah and learns about revolutions and socialism. She refers to Leon Trotsky, Fidel Castro, Che Guevara. The American Vietnam War, the Socialist Revolutionaries of Iran, Frezi, Fatimi, and Ashraf, Descartes, and Marx. Her favorite comic book, Dialectic Materialism, inspires her anti-authoritarian slash patriarchy attitude and behavior, but she's barred from attending protests due to her age. I did love that little comic because of that guy throwing the rock at him. <laughs> <laughs> Section 3, The Water Cell. After a long day of socialist protests, ironically, Margie wants to play Monopoly. Instead, her parents tell her the truth about her historical and family background in contrast to the propaganda she learns at school. She learns that 50 years ago in 1925, the father of the current king was Reza Shah, a low-ranking and illiterate but ambitious young officer who was influenced and supported by the British to organize a coup d'etat to overthrow the Qajar emperor, who also happens to be her great-grandfather. Under the empire of the Shah, her grandfather's family had everything confiscated, and her Western-educated grandfather was appointed as prime minister, but became a communist and was imprisoned. In prison, her grandfather was forced to sit in a cell filled with water for hours. Margie loses all interest in Monopoly and decides to sit in a bath instead to understand what her grandfather might have gone through. Section 4, Persepolis. Margie's grandmother visits, and she learns more about the hardship her family endured and that Although Reza Shah had been brutal, his son Mohammed Reza was ten times worse and kept her grandfather in prison. Margie's mother and grandmother worry about her father, who is overdue, and Margie starts fantasizing about him being shot. However, Margie's father appears and tells them all the story of how an old man who died of cancer was turned into a false martyr in the name of the revolution. Margie realizes how much she doesn't understand about things during the conversation and vows to read everything she can. Section 5, The Letter. Margie describes, oh, reading Kurdish author Ashraf Darvishian in Iranian, or in Iranian Charles Dickens, who makes her more aware of class structures in her society, even within her own home. Her nursemaid, Mehri, was taken in by her family at the age of eight as a housekeeper, and was only ten when she was born in 1972. By the age of 16, was she was madly in love with the neighbor's boy, but once he discovered that she was the maid, his interest ceased, which of course broke Mehri's heart. Margie did not understand why, as her father explained, their love was impossible, since one must stay in one's own social class. Margie sees this as unfair and one of the reasons for the revolution, so she convinces Mehri to attend anti-Shah demonstrations with her on Black Friday in 1978, a day when many demonstrators were shot and killed by the Shah's armed forces, for which they received a stern rebuke from Margie's mother. Section 6, The Party. The massacre of Black Friday was only the beginning of a long period of violence, which led to the decline and exile of the Shah in Egypt. His departure prompted the biggest celebration in the history of Iran. 
Margie becomes more aware of politics and the fickleness of human nature as she observes former supporters of the Shah, now touting pro-revolution propaganda and support. Margie incites action against her classmates, who were children of the Shah's secret service, Savak, who unapologetically killed and tortured a million communists. Margie's mother suggests more tolerance and forgiveness towards such people, and Margie tries hard to do so. Section 7, The Heroes. 3,000 political prisoners were released in March of 1979, and Margie's family knew two of them who were imprisoned for communist revolutionary acts. When they came to visit, their family was shocked by their tales of enduring horrific torture by Iranians who had received special training from the CIA and the deaths of many of their comrades. Margie experiences shame that her father is not a hero of the revolution and is confused by her mother who is now saying that bad people are dangerous but forgiving them is too. Don't worry, there is justice on earth. Margie has no idea what justice is. Now that the revolution is complete, she abandons her dialectic materialism comics and seeks solace in her faith. <laughs> Section 8, Moscow. Margie is overjoyed by the visit of one of her father's five brothers, her uncle Anoush, who was imprisoned for nine years as a communist revolutionary and hero of the revolution. He tells her how her grandfather was loyal to the Shah, but his uncle Faridun was devoted to ideals of justice and democracy, so he had gone along with a group of his friends and attempted to bring about independence from the Shah in the province of Azerbaijan. Anoush joined him, much to the dismay of her grandfather, and together they plotted the freedom and independence of all provinces in Iran. Faridun was arrested and executed, but his girlfriend escaped to Switzerland with their son. Anoush was able to escape to the USSR, where he became a Marxist-Leninist scholar and married a Russian woman and had two girls. Anoush tells Margie that Russians aren't like Iranians. They don't have hearts, so they were divorced, and in his attempt to return to Iran to see his family, he was discovered and imprisoned. He encourages Margie to remember his story, if in, even if she has difficulty understanding it because it is their family memory and it must not be lost, then gives her a swan he made in prison. A bread swan. Mm -hmm. Section 9, The Sheep. In discussion with Margie's father, her uncle Anush points out that since half of Iran's population is illiterate, the people cannot be united around Marxist ideals. So only nationalism or a a religious ethic would work. Eventually, he thought the working classes would rule, and in a way, he was correct. The exit of the Shah and the abolition of the monarchy paved the way for Ayatollah Khomeini and the Islamic Republic in 1979. Margie's world is altered forever by the creation of the Republic, as many friends and family leave Iran for the United States and Europe. Her uncle Anush encourages everyone by telling them that it's just a period of transition and that everything will work out. However, they soon discover that their communist revolutionary friends who had just been released from prison are either dead or fled. One of them is found drowned in his bathtub. The other had to cross the border with his wife and daughter hidden among a flock of sheep. And Anush is arrested and executed as a Russian spy. This leaves Margie in tears. With another swan he made for her, she rejects her faith, lost and without bearing in the universe, unable to think of anything worse. Then bombs fell on Iran. And section 10 is called The Trip. Fundamentalist students were reported in the news as taking over the United States Embassy, eliminating any future hope for Margie's family getting a visa to join friends and family there. The universities were also announced as closed pending reform of two years to prevent any more imperialistic indoctrination, dashing Margie's hope for a science degree. Margie's mother, who correctly predicts that women will be forced to wear a veil, is accosted by fundamentalists for not wearing a veil. Margie's family observed their neighbors once again, changing their behavior to suit the new regime as if they had always adhered to fundamentalist ways. Margie is encouraged to produce similar fabrications to safeguard her family, and at the same time, her family demonstrates for women's rights. Although this is brought up 
to an abrupt end when demonstrators are violently attacked in 1980. Margie's family goes on an abrupt vacation for three weeks to Spain and Italy, only to return home to the announcement of war with Iraq, the second Arab invasion in 1400 years, and Margie felt ready to fight. Section 11 is titled the F-14s. The sight of F-14s, not knowing if they were Iranian or if not, frightens Margie and her family. A radio report confirms that the capital city of Tehran has indeed been bombed by Iraqi MiGs. Margie's father is doubtful about Iran's ability to defend itself since all the pilots were either jailed or executed after a failed coup d'etat, an attitude that Margie interprets as defeatist and unpatriotic. They are all shocked and overjoyed when they hear the Iranian national anthem broadcast on the television and had been banned and replaced by an Islamic hymn. They ascertain afterwards that the jailed pilots agreed to be freed in order to attack Iraq only on the conditions the government broadcast the national anthem. So the Iranians fought back and bombed Baghdad, but it cost them heavily. Margie discovers that one of her friends at school lost her father in the air raid and was stunned that her attempts to console the girl with praises of heroism for her father was rebuked with, I wish he were alive in jail than, rather than dead and a hero. The F-14s is a symbol of hope for a better future. Section 12 is the jewels. War brings strife to Margie's neighborhood as fearful people quickly buy out store shelves in order to overstock their homes to provide for their families in case of diminished supply. Margie's mother once again shows her duplicity by scolding bickering neighbors over hoarding instead of taking what they need so there is enough for everyone and then sending Margie to different shops to get as many boxes of rice as possible. The roads become overburdened with cars and a limited amount of fuel is available due to the Iraqi bombing of an oil refinery in Abadan and many other border towns. Margie's mother becomes worried for an old childhood friend upon hearing the news of Abadan, but she unexpectedly arrives on her doorstep seeking refuge for herself and her family with nothing but the clothes on their back and a handful of jewels to pawn for their survival. They had a large expensive that house cost a million and beautiful home that took a lifetime to build but but then destroyed in an instant then to add insult to injury they were regarded with suspicion by the urbanites as threats both to their food supply and to their families the women were accused of prostituting themselves for food section 13 is the key although the iraqi army had more modern weaponry Iran had a greater number of young soldiers. Margie notices the number of martyrs reported in the daily news and the twice-daily funeral marches with self-flagellation sessions at her school. She feels that Persians are too resigned to the idea of martyrs and wars. At school, none of the students take any of their duties to the new regime seriously. Parents are frustrated that they are being forced to waste their youth on fundamental ideology, and teachers are angry with their lack of respect for the new laws, threatening to expel them all. Margie and her mother discover that young army recruits from the poor areas are given plastic keys painted gold and told if they go to war for Iran and are lucky enough to die, the key will open the door to heaven for them where there was plenty of food, women, and houses of gold waiting for them. It was in this way that Iran convinced thousands of young men to meet their death on the battlefield. Margie's mother is able to prevent one young man from this fate while Margie enjoys her first punk rock house party. Section 14 is called The Wine. After the border towns, Tehran itself became a target and the basement of Margie's building was turned into a bomb shelter. This is part of an anxious new way of life for Margie's family, where they routinely went to the basement with every siren that announced an air raid, followed by calling all their loved ones to ensure everyone was well. 
They lived in fear of being caught and punished for indulging in decadent or Western behavior, like playing cards or chess, listening to music or watching videos and drinking alcohol. Nonetheless, having weekly parties or card games with wine expertly and secretly made by Margie's uncle was their only way to alleviate the stress of their new lives and a way to privately revolt against the new regime. On their way home from a celebration, Margie's family is stopped by some young guardians of the revolution at one of their random checkpoints. The guardians threatened to punish Margie's father, who is suspected of drinking and for wearing a necktie, which was considered a symbol of Western decadence, and to search their house for more banned items. But her parents successfully convinced them to forget the idea with a few sympathetic words and a small bribe while Margie and her grandmother needlessly destroy their entire stash of wine. Section 15 is the cigarette. After two years of war at an early age of 12 in 1982, Margie is very astute. She makes friends with who are slightly older than she is, and like normal teenagers anywhere, they experiment with autonomy and sexuality by skipping classes and ogling boys at a trendy teenager hangout called Kansas. Margie expects to elicit some camaraderie when her mother discovers her bad behavior, but when she scolds her and says she accuses her mother of being as oppressive as a guardian of the revolution in their home. Margie learns that the Iranian army has successfully pushed back the Iraqi army to the borders and everyone thought the war would end. Instead, they plunged even deeper into the war as the Iranian regime now sought to expand their Islamic revolution, sacrificing another million to their cause. The fundamentalist regime used the war as an excuse to exterminate all internal enemies as well and became even more oppressive. Margie smokes her first cigarette as a typical act of teenage rebellion, believing that she left behind her childhood in the process. Section 16 is called The Passport. After sending his oldest son to Holland for protection before the borders were closed, Margie's uncle Tahir becomes deeply depressed and further disturbed by the slaughter of Iranian youth in the war and his inability to join his son. When he suffers his third heart attack, it becomes apparent that he will not survive without being sent to England for treatment. When official channels to procure a passport take too long, Majir's father attempts to acquire a forged one. However, the forger is discovered and forced to flee Iran without completing the passport for her uncle, who succumbs to his illness the day his official passport arrives. While at the hospital visiting her uncle, Margie's family learns of the further despicable realities of the war and that Germany sells chemical weapons to Iraq to use on Iranians who are sent to Germany for treatment. Section 17 is Kim Wilde. Only a year after her uncle's untimely death in uh, 16, 6 and 16, the passport, the borders were reopened. This is 1983, and Margie's parents go alone on a holiday to Turkey. While away, they purchased many decadent items for Margie that were no longer imported to Iran due to war or religious bans, and they smuggle them into Iran for her. Margie receives a denim jacket, chocolate, a poster of Iron Maiden, and a poster of Kim Wilde, high-top Nike sneakers, and a Michael Jackson button. Margie immediately puts the poster in her room and is eager to show off her new gear. She puts in her high tops, her denim jacket, and, of course, her headscarf. With her mother's permission, Margie ventures out to connect with the black market that has grown around the shortages caused by the war and repression. After purchasing two illegal audio tapes, she is stopped by members of the new women's branch of the Guardians of the Revolution, who are unimpressed by her new symbols of decadence, improperly worn headscarf, and two tight jeans, and threaten to bring her in front of their headquarters committee, where she would likely be physically punished in some way and, or detained without consent. 
Somehow she manages to convince them to let her go, and she returns home to listen to her newly acquired music, Kim Wilde's Kids in America, in full volume, to calm down. Section 18, The Shabbat. Iraq acquired new long-range ballistic Scud missiles from the Soviet Union to use against Iran that would do more damage in less time, making the journey to the bomb shelter in the basement pointless. Once the sirens announced the bombs that targeted Tehran, there was only a three-minute warning to know if the end had come. Many left Tehran and some took refuge in the buildings of big hotels, but many stayed. Marcia and her family stayed in Tehran as did their rare for Tehran Jewish neighbors. One fatal Saturday, the Jewish Sabbath, Margie rushes home when she discovers a scud has hit her street. Although she's happily reunited with her mother, she's saddened by the realization that her neighbor's home has been destroyed. And while hoping they were not at home, she unexpectedly sees the partial remains of her neighbor's daughter and is overcome with rage. Section 19, the final section of the book, is called The Dowry. In response to the death of her neighbor's daughter at the age of 14, Margie becomes a fearless rebel and is expelled from her school. Her mother is gripped with fear by her rebelliousness, explaining that she risks execution, which is even worse for young women because it is against the law to kill a virgin. To circumvent this law, a guardian of the revolution will marry a condemned virgin, take her virginity, execute her, then sends her a meager dowry and message to her family. In order to save Margie from such a fate, her family decides to send her to Austria to attend French school. And the last scene of the book is, um, I believe, her and her family saying goodbye at the airport. Yeah, and specifically, she's saying that she didn't want to look back at them, and then she does, and her mother has fainted. And her dad is, like, carrying yes. her in her arms, uh, which is very sad. And I think the last line is something like, I wish I hadn't looked back. And, uh, yeah, it, it would have been better to just go and not look back. And, just to yeah, go. Which is a very yeah. sad scene. Uh, yes, thank you for helping me out with that. You're welcome. Oh, You're welcome. boy, yeah. So the first question, of course, is did you like this? I feel like maybe we discussed it already in our history of it, but did yeah. you like it? Oh, yeah, yeah. I think, like you said, I think we already we already talked about how mm-hmm. much both of us like liked it. And just the second time around, I feel like I was getting a perspective of, of somebody and really a country and a group of people that I don't often see – when I turn on the news or when I hear people speak and things like that. And it's, um, especially of events. And like I said, I, I chimed in with in in our background section about 1979 and the revolution and the hostage crisis and U S foreign policy since then. And that's always the lens through which I've viewed Iran and to put this, this human face on it and see it from the, this inside perspective of it was insightful and refreshing and really worth both the initial read and the reread. Yep. And I agree with you. I enjoy reading about different cultures with my Rory's reading list. I feel like I've hopped upon (laughs) several Japanese culture, Chinese culture. I just read the joy luck club and with yeah. this, yeah, with Iran. I love Joy I, <laughs> I know you do. I'm sure that's coming down the pike sometime for this show. And with Iran, I also read, which was another great memoir, is called Reading Lolita and Tehran. 
uh, and it's a, a memoir in books uh, about this woman and teaching a class with a bunch of other ladies in Iran, and it, it is, it's a true story. So I enjoy coming back to this particular culture. I've enjoyed learning about it, uh, mostly through its architecture, I feel like, and its history uh, in my university readings, but this has been just great to revisit and and I very much enjoy it and um, the images I think capture so much as well I think that this would be a very different book with words only uh, as mm-hmm. as many you know I think comics and and graphic novels are but I think this is just very powerful the images and the words very much come together so I I really enjoy it yes but, <laughs> but now we actually have the discussion which is great yes we do yes. so I want to first start off actually talking about the author here and found an interview with her which I thought was pretty interesting but I think I I won't talk about it until after we discuss this answer because she almost gives an answer to this question Okay. but to what extent do you think that she's either reliable or unreliable because she was a child when all these things and all these events are happening that's an interesting point this I was uh, recently discussing Illy Wiesel's night in well in in my classes, but also on on the most recent episode of of the high school book club, and this also came up as well because he is fifteen sixteen years old uh, when he is rounded up and, and put into Auschwitz, and then another another uh, very famous memoir the ki- the people who are our, our students age would be reading would be the diary of Anne Frank another Holocaust memoir. And, and so these, but these are memoirs of people who are either children or young adults. And I think you have a good point. Like, you know, they're not fully, you're not getting the trustworthy academic or historian point of view. You're getting an eyewitness point of view and primary sources, primary sources are very, very valuable to any historical narrative, at least as, as far as I'm concerned, because you know you you get a you get a on the ground perspective, but you get that person's perspective, so you don't get the whole picture. But at the same time, we only know so much very often, especially in our culture. That, like I said, it, it, it's a refreshing perspective, and maybe the, the reliability of the narrator made me think of the reliability and the way we look at news in our current modern day culture. And I wrote down, um, you have a female narrator. Mm -hmm. This narrator is a person of color. This narrator is Muslim. And this is a controversial topic. And there there are some in our culture who look at that and prejudge in their minds that this person must always be accurate all the time. So one false statement... And those people with that prejudice, they will nitpick facts to automatically think that that person is completely discredited in their mind Mm -hmm. because they do not believe that person and they're looking to discredit them. Now, this isn't like a million little pieces by – and I can't remember his name. It was proven that large portions of that book were completely fabricated. You know, because there's a difference between like you know getting somebody's name wrong or taking like one or two people you know and kind of like making one person out of them or or like you know going from a memory and it's like it didn't exactly happen one hundred percent that way but like eighty to ninety percent of the way you're like okay yeah well it makes sense in terms of the narrative and the story you're telling 
that was like, you know, large portions of it. It, it might have was well, it's just been a novel. But like, so I, I thought of that, like, you know, and I and I had to wonder, like, do you have to be like, is there is there more of a burden on you if you're not like a white male to to be a, like always accurate because you have to look out for whether or not somebody's going to tear you apart in your um in your relation you're relating a story, especially in a topic that's as controversial as this has been made to be in in our uh, current american political climate if you're not a white male i think i'm just saying the internet does not help it doesn't no but you know this is to a certain extent this goes back to i know why the cage bird sings because i think we also ask the question of you know when you're writing a memoir you are leaving it wholly up to belief in this person and trusting what they say Mm -hmm. I also think back to I, – I, I think of this idea of almost narrative bias um, or I think back to ancient historians like Caesar, for example, or Herodotus who are writing mm-hmm. and they have a lot of – a lot writing on the line, especially Caesar who's writing you know, for the Senate but it's also to bolster his acclaim <laughs> with the people. And then yeah. Herodotus is, is writing speeches that he was in no way around for. So you know, where, where's that, uh, that belief coming from? So your main question is you know, if, the, if the author is not white and a man, are we – we're not going to believe them as much? I – no, I, I just I think that not well not you and me specifically, but I think there's a large portion of the of um and, and they're very often on on the internet that when you have a narrator you have a woman who's a person of color who's mm-hmm. of religion like Islam that she should not like in in all honesty she should not feel that she has a greater burden of proof or something to to offer but. I feel that that the, that there are people, and they tend to be white men, who are out there who are ready to nitpick the heck out of every oh, little thing in a book yeah. like this, because in their mind, one false move and it's completely discredited. And yeah. there's a double standard when somebody who is not that person, well, you know, like they're willing to give that a pass, and and that's mm-hmm. that's that's what I went to. But I also think of like. I also think of a, of a memoir like Night, where where there are parts of it that are clearly, I don't want to say fictionalized, but like there's there's a there's a there's something that he's doing the prose where he's not just kind of reporting facts and he's telling the story, and I feel like she's doing that here, mm-hmm. and thematically, thematically, you're getting something very very rich right. in that memoir as as well as this memoir, and I I personally see her as somebody who admits when she's an unreliable narrator. Yeah. I I also do, yeah. The the thing about I guess if if we're saying you know those those annoying white males and perhaps they're what are those armchair professors is that <laughs> they're far removed from the situation, so they may have like the academic knowledge, but they didn't live it. And so yes. even though she's a child, I would take her memory over these things and her real life experience of these things than someone who has been learning about it, I guess, second or third hand. Yes, or the trolls who are parroting something <laughs> they heard on a – and because those are the other types of people I yeah. was going after too. Yeah. There are a lot of trolls who will just attack this parroting something they heard on a very less than reputable website. Yeah. So, and, and you know, unfortunately, we have been burned. I think as readers, I think it's the three cups of tea, um, mm-hmm. right? So where where yeah. things then, you know, it's just a beautiful story. I read that years ago for a book club, in fact, and then it comes out that the guy lied about it, and you're like, 
oh my goodness, you know? Yeah. So yeah. it's not like we've been burned before, but I think to a certain extent, we, we do need to believe the author and I think trust, trust, maybe trust, but verify or just trust. And then if, if it so happens or trust and believe in good intent and, and that's it, I think I would say that she's reliable because she's lived it. So it's not like it's secondhand stuff. Mm-hmm. I'd say just the point that she's unreliable, unreliable is because she is a child which I know is somewhat judgmental, but just because it's been a little while, um, she has been, I I mean, she started writing this in, I guess, I mean, it was after she had returned. It's not like she Mm -hmm. wrote this when she went to Austria and then, you know, then she came back and then she wrote the second one. She wrote, you know, them all together. And so she's been removed from that specific age for a little while. So of course, memories Mm -hmm. fade a little bit. And, I think what you had just brought up is something I was thinking about as well because the impact of this really comes into focus when she has moments, and there were two times I specifically remember. One of them's on page 86, uh, the bottom one, where we actually, you quoted that in in your synopsis, uh, that her friend uh, said, I wish he were alive and in jail rather than dead and a hero. And she yes. points out in her narrator box, or, or her, I guess that's what it is, those were yeah, her yeah. exact words to me. And I remember another time was when the parents got called in by the teachers, and her father said something, well, the, the woman was saying how hair gets people all riled up, you know? Yeah. Mustaches or something get get women all riled up. Yes. And then her father said, <laughs> if that's true, then you need to shave your upper lip or something <laughs> like that. And then at the bottom it says he actually said that. So then that's when you like are pulled back because the, the reason or the fact that she's actually stepping back and saying those are the exact words bring into question, well, wait a minute. If those are the exact words and that actually happened – then how much like am I taking for granted of this whole narrative? Yeah, but it's, and, and at the same time, like the the root of memoir is memory, mm-hmm. and mm-hmm. and in in general, like you have people have to remember um, because memoir is ex- such exploded so much as a, as a genre over the last like couple of decades, and people have to remember that m- memory is fallible. Oh, absolutely. You know, like, and yeah. and I think sometimes, I think sometimes it's something we do in our culture. We get very, very caught up in whether or not that person is like, is this true? And it's yeah. like, you know, it is, it is in my memory. But at the same time, like when she says those are exact words, and he actually said this, that's such a way we tell stories. Like if you've ever just sat down and listened to somebody tell a story, and you're like, you know what, his exact words to me were this. It's such a natural way, and sometimes I think. You know, and sometimes people's stories where like the words kind of get mixed up over the years. It's like a fish story. The fish gets bigger and bigger and bigger. But at the same time, like you always have that one line you remember, that one thing that person said to you. So this actually endears her as a narrator to me because she's she's basically relying on storytelling conventions that we as just regular people – use in our everyday lives when we're relating a story of something that happened no matter how much we might be exaggerating about you know that date we had or the fish we caught or you know or the home run you hit or whatever it is but it's like the the, you you, you hook onto those tiny little details and all of a sudden that story is a little bit more uh more believable or or more vivid and and it's it's totally so that that's uh that's where i give her a little bit of credit too yeah, it sort of reminds me of the the film Big Fish. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I love that movie. 
So my sub, my final sub question, then I'll reveal to you what uh, Marjan said okay. is in regard to understanding a story. And do you think if we don't understand a story or history, can we properly relate it to other people? And this, uh, I got this question. This is on page 60 when her uncle is talking to her, her uncle Anoush. Mm-hmm. And uh, the final panel on that page, she says, I tell you all this because it's important that you know. Our family memory must not be lost, even if it's not easy for you, even if you don't understand it all. And then, of course, she says, don't worry, I'll never forget. So do you think you need to understand in order to properly relate it? Or can you just tell it all without understanding? And then at one point, once you relate it again and you've matured enough and you can actually find that understanding. Or is something lost in between if you don't understand it? I think, unfortunately, in our modern-day culture, we don't care whether or not we understand <laughs> it. Because, oh, my goodness. No, I'm not kidding. I think sometimes people in our culture don't feel that they need to understand it in order to relate it. Because I think sometimes they'll take – they'll if they don't understand it, they just take the event. If they know something about the event, they'll squeeze it into whatever their – they'll project their modern their modern views on it, whether they be religious or political or, or moral or whatever, and, and, and not look at the actual lens through which you know that other person is looking through or, or consider the event in the context in which it happened. I honestly think we need to understand a story before we, or 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 we can relate to stories without understanding. But with the uh, with the idea in our head that we should be seeking out the understanding that we don't have, mm-hmm. that you can't because you know you and I have both studied history fairly quite a bit, mm-hmm. and I think we both know that you really should not boil down a historical event to like one or two facts or a sound clip right and i think that that seeking that understanding whether it is through more facts or more testimony from people or or that is is really really important um before we really do start relating uh, a story especially if we're gonna pick up and relate a story of somebody like we're doing it by proxy for them because perhaps they're not there to tell it. And in my mind, then you have burdens, the wrong word, but you have the task or the it's up. It's up to you to make sure you're relating it in the right way. That is not that is the way that they would have wanted to relate it. And I like I said, I want to make it sound like it is a burden, but you almost have the burden of proof there. You have the burden of 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 telling it the right way. But but like I said, I, the responsibility I guess is probably the word I'm looking for mm-hmm. uh, of telling it the right way. So I think right. you need I think you need to seek that understanding. I think it's yeah, important. But, yeah, I think to a certain extent, you know, if you don't understand it, you don't know which details need to be there and which don't. So you could be sort of excising and cutting because you feel like a detail isn't important, but maybe that's like the central detail of, of what you're relating and you, you just yeah. lost it all. Yeah. So I, I think, you know, very simplistically, for example, I'm reading Dune now by Frank Herbert, and I told my mom that I was reading Dune, and she asked what it was about. And so, you know, even when you're doing something so simplistic like that, you have to understand what you're reading in order to relate it to somebody. And then, of yeah. course, with certain books, it gets a little too complex because then you have to, you know, you can't really summarize Dune too much. I was only 200 pages in at the time, so I could only go on yeah. and on about the political stuff. Uh, so, yeah, I feel like you do need to, to understand it. Now, I do trust 
asked her, because I think she very cutely and innocently says, don't worry, I'll, I'll never forget. Though hopefully, you know, she'll remember every detail. And I think uh, she very much adored Anush. So I think she very much hung on every word, probably. Yeah. So, so I do trust that, even though she didn't understand what was happening, that, that she probably remembered it. And the, and the, the two other incidents, the, the, I think she, I still get the feeling she had a lot of respect for her parents. Because even though she had some conflict with her mother, mm-hmm. there's something very adolescent about some of the conflicts she has with her mother, as also well as political and, and things like that. She would remember her father saying that because, again, it's one of those moments where like he was sticking up for her. Mm-hmm. And so she's like, she's probably proud of him for that. And then I would say when her friend says, I wish he were alive and in jail, then a hero that is a moment that um, rattles you. And those are the moments we do tend to remember. We play them back in our heads and you know, like you, the things that rattle you, the things that shock you, the things that make you uncomfortable. So that's, yeah, that's why I, that's, that's another reason I do trust her that way. And, and I think the thing with Anoush, like you're right, he would have, she would have hung on every word. So she's, she's hitting those right notes there too. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So I was watching an interview for, the movie. Well, I wanted to watch like a mo- an interview about her with the book, but I couldn't find one. I found one for a second uh, book that she had written specifically about her father and before all this, but not for this one. And so the movie, which came out in 2007, she <laughs> said she didn't even want it to be a movie, but she was trying to help out a friend who wanted to produce something. So she's like, well. Well, the story is based on your real-life experiences growing up in Iran and Austria and France. And is this movie 100% autobiographical, or is this a fictional story uh, inspired by your ordeals growing up? I think the second thing is, is better put, because, you know, it's certainly not a documentary about my life. And it's certainly a subjective point of view. And it's certainly that when you make a, st- a script, you know, the part of the storytelling we should never forget it. So if it, I pretend that is 100% autobiographical, that means that the dog looks like the dog that I drew, that this thing that I said, exactly I said this thing, which, which is not true. Of course, it's a part of, of storytelling. It's based on my own experiences. And then, you know, you have to make, make a story. I think even documentaries, they are, they are part fictional. As soon as you, you make a story, you have to have some fiction. Otherwise, it doesn't work. Yeah. What inspired you to create the Persepolis graphic novels? Well, you know, that was really my answer to the words, to the word, because, you know, the two times that I left Iran in 84 and in 94, I heard so many crazy things about my, you know, Iran, you know, people, they were saying things, and I was like, this is not like this, this is not like that, and, you know, that is a truth, a reality that you see on the TV channel, that I don't say it doesn't exist, it does. But that is many other realities that we never see. So, you know, that was really to say, this I will give you at least another point of view. It's a very personal one. It just engaged my own person, but this is it. And so that was the beginning, how I started it. And of course, you know, I wrote it five years after I left Iran the second time. Because, you know, I needed to have distance with the story. I didn't have to be angry anymore. I didn't have to have any violence in me anymore. Because, you know, you cannot answer to the stupidity by stupidity. You cannot answer to the violence by violence. So it's extremely important to take a step back and look at the thing. So that is what I tried to do, and that was the reason I made it in the first place. Okay. 
So now we turn to the more serious subject matter about the the revolution itself and uh, the goings-on in in the context of this book. So you had asked about what what can we learn from this about philosophy-driven revolutions and a change in government and and an overturn or an upheaval of government and... uh, that eventually uh, people might be excited in the beginning, but in the end they're going to get disappointed. What does this book have to offer us in that way? I just it, it, she mentions in the book she mentions Castro at one point, yeah. and Castro is a really good example of where they overthrew Batista, and it really was this people's revolution, and all of a sudden Fidel became a dictator. And I'm sim- I am simplifying that like crazy, but you also have like the Russian Revolution and the Civil War that followed, and Lenin begot Stalin. And Stalin is probably not what Marx had in mind. You know, the same way that like you know, so you had this sort of i you had this ideal, and yet when put into practice, it gets um, it gets warped in some way or another. And by the time the revolution is over or those people who who have finally come to power, settle into power, it's much, much different. And then there are revolutions that take the shape of so many different upheavals. The French revolution is a great example where it is this revolution of the people and they overflow the king. But then you have the reign of terror and you end up with Napoleon. It's a mess and stuff. So, so I was wondering, like, what is there? Is there uh, what connection does that have there? Because, like, you know, history is about cycles and relationships mm-hmm. and, and how you things mirror one another in ways that, like, even in real life, you're like, wow. And uh, so that was that was basically the question here. And I, I did see a little bit of a mirror in that, and I was wondering if she was doing that deliberately. Yeah, I mean, I feel like we can learn something, but I don't know if the people involved will learn anything. Mm, that's a good point because. I think there certainly are cycles, and, and probably people on the outside will read it and be like, well, we're not like that, and then it happens. Mm-hmm. And, you know, I, I'm sure these people could look around and, and see the very same thing, but then, then it happens. I mean, history literally does repeat itself. Yeah. <laughs> you know, it, it's just a variation on a theme, unfortunately. Uh, I, I find it interesting that how quickly public opinion can change. Yeah. I think that's something that we can um, certainly <laughs> learn about here as well. Yeah. As, um, yeah. Because here we have, you know, and, and it's almost like biblical because, you know, Jesus wrote in on Palm Sunday and people were super excited and then they were crying Barabbas later on. So, yeah, I know. <laughs> you know, here we have people to a certain extent being excited and hating the westerners and then they realize oh gosh actually what this is what we got we don't like this and then the war came around and they're like yes unity let's take down iraq and then they're like oh my gosh the war is still going on and look at the death and destruction over here so uh yeah you might have public opinion in your favor for a little bit but it's going to sway over no matter Mm -hmm. what you can't hold on to it so that's what i i learned about that i think a little bit more than well, you said that you know they eventually turn on themselves and disappoint the people. So I think that's yeah. I get that more rather than the revolutionary 
uh, topic there. But it is interesting. She picks up all of those people and all of the um, the revolutionists and, and the free thinkers at the beginning that she marches around as Che Guevara and, and, and all of those mm-hmm. people, yeah. Well, then you have our neighbors who seem to change their political views oh. at, like, the drop of a hat. Just to, yep, and yep. just and And not for, like... I guess some of it comes from self-preservation, but at the same time, her her and her parents, her mother especially, is disdain for the neighbors, seem to be more of like, gosh, how easily led are you? Like, you know, you're just sheep as opposed to, oh, I understand why you're, you know, all of a sudden you're look like you're hearing the fundamental value, the fundamental philosophy because you don't want to get thrown in jail. Mm-hmm. No, it's like, okay, wait, last week you were like, partying in jeans and now it's like you know you're head to toe veiled and but you know like this doesn't add up like all of a sudden now you're fundamentally like so that i i thought that that bit with her neighbors is very very true very very true to life even in this country i think it's almost self-preservation though too did you oh yeah yeah i did but i was wondering how much like how much of it is she pointing out the self-preservation of people and how much is she criticizing her neighbors for basically being hypocrites i think a lot of it is criticism but on their Mm -hmm. side i can see this self-preservation because i mean her mother though is very much a hypocrite and she even tells her because i remember Marjan comes home and says something about the prayer or whatever. How many times? Someone says, like, he prays blah, blah times a day. And then her mother says, if someone asks you that, you need to say you pray, like, you know, 20 times a day or Uh whatever it is. And then she's like, but I don't even, you know, do that. But clearly that's self-preservation, too, because you want to have this image of following the regime and and, and doing that. So I think there is criticism, but I think you've got to play the game in all honesty and oh, yeah. to survive where you are here you got so you got to be smart about it you can in secret i think you can rage against it but in public you need to have on the 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 look that or the image that you are doing as you are told mm-hmm. yeah i like agree my, my workplace <laughs> <laughs> I'm sure it's like all of our too. workplaces <laughs> i know oh man <sighs> well moving on to uh islam in general Mm-hmm. Do you feel like your knowledge and view of it will affect your judgment of the book? And overall, what do you think that this book teaches about Islam? I was just talking to my wife about this recently because I had been reading the book and I had gone back to – I might have been reading about some controversy in the news over somebody – getting in trouble for teaching the basic tenets of Islam or whatever. Like, you know, one of those stories that pops up in your Facebook feed. I I started thinking back as to when I learned about Islam. Christianity was not hard to remember learning about because I I was – my dad's a lapsed Catholic, but my mother is Lutheran, and my sister and I went to church in the Lutheran church until – really high school and so we went to sunday school so like you know it was part of my upbringing mm-hmm. so you know you know and 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 with some of that came judaism mm-hmm. because i had friends who were jewish and you know there's well there's old testament and 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 the then um and you know i like went to my friend's bar mitzvah and i learned some 
you know, some Jewish customs and things. But when it came to Islam, I first learned about in the sixth grade and learned it in a very textbook sort of way, you know, like, okay, this is what it's about. This is the major text. This is how it's actually connected to Christianity and Judaism in some ways. And, um, these are the five pillars, et cetera, et cetera. And, uh, and these are some basic terms. And it was, it was a very dry academic approach. You know, it wasn't very particularly interesting. It, it's, seemed like a very interesting religion but it was nothing that, I, that appealed to me you know nobody's trying to make me you know confirm my religion it was just like you know this is the unit we're covering and now we're going to do hinduism you know it was like yeah, you know here's the religion yeah, of the world yeah. and it, it's interesting that like so i and and the funny thing is is that somewhere along the line in and i want to say it was toward the end of the 90s there became this it, and and it, maybe it was just maybe I'm looking at it from a very very sheltered point of view because I lived a very sheltered childhood. But this intertwining of Islam and like evil evil terrorism became more and more and more and more and more as we've gone you know from my upbringing in the 80s till now because I was always able to discern between Islam and like. Arab terrorists, mm-hmm. like you know, and, and like you know, like Libyan terrorists or the PLO or whomever. And the religion, and there are many who can't. So I think it honestly depends. I think I think your own personal view of Islam can affect the way you approach this book, mm-hmm. because that's where some of the controversy has come from um, over the book. Like my personal view of Islam is so was my upbringing of it was so basic, and I've so I've tried to understand it more out of a view of just somebody who's just very tolerant. Or tries to be tolerant. Um, I don't want to make myself seem like a saint or anything, but I try my best to be tolerant. So when I came into this, I felt that this gave me an insight into a segment, both a segment of of her her own personal religion, of also the radical side of it, because the way the radical Islam of the Iranian Revolution is presented is in a way a very very like in a very bomb bombastic manner mm-hmm. and and I'm, I'm stereotyping our media coverage of it but it has it has historically been been up there with like other these are the bad guy type of presentations so it was interesting to see a more street level on a sense view of that because you don't usually get that my my your image your image of radical islam is like Khomeini saying something at a lectern, uh, training footage from an Al-Qaeda camp, something with bin Laden in it, the remnants of or footage of violence. And it's almost like in a loop that's repeated. And here you have you have that. You have a lot of that, but you also have a very like, you know, this is what was happening on the streets and this was happening in our houses and this is what was happening here. And you can kind of take that as you will because – there seems to be a little bit of cautionary tale in here, but there also seems to be like, you know, her just presenting it for what it was mm-hmm. and, and trying to get us to gain a perspective that we don't necessarily have because we didn't live through it. Yeah. And to a certain extent, I, I, I felt like it's more from a secular perspective mm-hmm. um, because she doesn't necessarily, I mean, we, we, we could talk about the religious uh, overtones and everything because, it, I mean, it begins with her believing that she's a prophet. She does have conversations with God. Mm-hmm. Um, but for everything else, I feel like I don't get a good sense of the religion. So all I have is my background knowledge of everything. Mm-hmm. The martyrs, I think, is is a big point, obviously, that we 
we see those children that that's always an image that pops up in my mind on page 95 with all the children with their glazed eyes beating their breasts there yeah. um you know and then the the different but i i feel like besides the veil and and what that symbolism is and the key and and coming to paradise there's not too much a sense of what what are their their tenets of of the religion what is their doctrine like which that i don't think that's necessarily the point of the book um, perhaps yeah. some background and you know what it is, but it's really about, I think, the socio-political connection with the religion and how that religion is impacting it and, and this change and everything. So, but, but from her perspective, I just feel like it's more of a, um, she's more of a, a secular writer looking at yeah. it from the outside. Um, so for me, my knowledge and, 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 Judgment. I think it just added background to it. I think if you come in hating Islamic and Muslim people, uh, that clearly this is not the book for you. Or you know yeah. anyone with some sort of vendetta or hatred or the inability to have empathy or you know have any interest in quote unquote the other, uh, then obviously it's going to be it's going to affect you. Um, even though it's not, you know, terribly religious, I think that just being over uh, in this area and it being surrounded, it being everywhere and, and perhaps nowhere, um, that obviously that's going to affect your, your perception of this. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and I think part of it, so then we get into this controversy here. And now I read that article, the, the Chicago part, and... It seemed like, like I said, that it, it made sense, not the banning, mind you, but that you should be cautious because there are some scenes of torture, right? Though I will get into the torture because, I mean, the hot iron obviously is horrifying. But yes. in the way it's portrayed, it's portrayed from the mind of a child. So you have to uh, sort of, you know, look at that. Well, actually, that's that's pretty bad. I was thinking about the man chopped up that more. That one's more... Absurd. absurd yes that's what it was it, it looks absurd because it's it's i mean it's a literal take almost of it or the eating the garbage yeah. and all that crazy stuff but yeah. uh, so I, I i can see that but I, what i wonder is was it more is there more controversy surrounding this book and was it banned and and does it keep coming up because of islamophobia because we as Americans associate anyone over there with, you know, freedom fighters and uh, 9-11 and terrorism and everything else. So is it more of a fear of the unknown, a fear of the other, that this is why we put it over there and saying, oh, this is all about them, we need to put it over there. What do you think? I think that's part of it. I know that some of the objection was to the graphic content. I think I want to say part of it is due to the fact that this is a medium that a number of adults still aren't used to seeing in a high school or in a classroom, even though comics and graphic novels and sequential art have and have been making more and more headway into curricula. Um, and I think that when they see this and they see, you know, as, as cartoonish as the artwork can be, you know, and it's not cartoony in a sort of like, you know, peanuts, Garfield right, sort right. of way, but it, but it is, it is not, um, and this is something I, a note that I wrote when I was talking about the art. This is not what you and I read in a normal Marvel book or a DC book where there's yeah. a lot of background. Like, you know, yeah. this isn't your, your Brian Hitch or your Alan Davis, your George Paris, where there's like <laughs> a lot of, back- right, right, right. Trying to go for some sort of realism. 
it's deliberately, you know, deliberately simple, deliberately cartoonish. But they see this like graphic depiction, and they see these things that you know are politically controversial, and, and I think they they get they get freaked out. I think on the more some of the more fervent challenges to this book have been Islamophobia based. The depictions of violence, like there was one part of the challenge, I think it was in Chicago, of removing it, of of not having it in a classroom below a certain grade, which on some level makes sense. Like if you're talking about like, you know, what age, the age appropriateness of this novel, but at the same time, somebody, you know, the, the, one of the controversies was that the superintendent, I'm sorry, CEO of the school system, which bothers me, but that's a whole other debate. (laughs) didn't really they they showed like all these emails that that she had and she really never she did a lot of made her decisions with a lot of disregard to the actual policy of the Chicago public schools as well as um and as well as like you know what the literary value of the claim of like the critical claim of the book is it like the book has a very good literary reputation you know it's it was it was published to a lot of acclaim so you know teaching this alongside some other memoirs of the same of a similar vein like you know does makes does make sense and there was a point that the cbldf made saying that um Chicago students themselves pointed out the few panels in Persepolis depicting torture techniques that were used in Iranian dissidents are no more graphic than the images encountered while studying other true events such as the Holocaust or slavery moreover Many of the same students exposed to real life violence daily in their own neighborhoods, especially in a city, uh, especially in parts of Chicago. And um, that's a very valid point when you bring up graphic depictions of violence in something like this. If you're teaching in a high school classroom and somebody objects to this, and I would counter by reading aloud a passage from Night. Or a passage from like a narrative of life of Frederick Douglass or something like it's like you know there are other memoirs that are just as graphic. Mm. So where is your beef? Is it the fact that there's art and there's pictorial depiction of it, or is it because this is written from the perspective of somebody who is from a country that the United States has cold to hostile relations with and. You know, are you coming from it from a lens of Islamophobia? So I don't want to say it's always Islamophobia; it's always mm-hmm. racism. But I think that's I think a number of the challenges have been partially, or maybe sometimes, all fueled by that. Mm-hmm. I think depending on the time that this, you know, mm-hmm. is being read, I think it, it's probably sinusoidal. You know, at some points, probably people wouldn't bat an eye and be like, "This is great work," and then other points they'd be like, "Ah." Uh, you know, which is, I think, probably true of, of anything. I, I think that people enjoy reading um, Hitler's memoir. Mein Kampf. I that, yeah, I think that's it's an interesting look inside of that person. But, you know, in World War II, you think people would be picking that up? No way, Jose. <laughs> so I, I, I think uh, it, it depends on that. Yeah, yep, yeah. Yeah. <sighs> Yeah. Well, I, I I hope it's not banned. Um, I don't it, know. It's been pulled here and there. Yeah. Sometimes the ALA uh, they like to use the word banned because it gets noticed. Yeah. The vast majority of books they're talking about, I, I see on these lists and stuff, there are challenges. Most of the time, those challenges actually fail. Mm-hmm. Where where the book is kept, and a lot of times it's not necessarily on a classroom; it's in a library or something. Uh, although there are there are some times where uh, 
In June of 2015, Persepolis was one of four graphic novels that a 20-year-old college student and her parents said should be, quote, eradicated from the system at Crafton Hills College in uh, Ucapa, California. After completing an English course on graphic novels, Tara Schultz publicly raised objections to Persepolis, Mm -hmm. Fun Home, which is by um, Alison Bechtel, and Why the Last Man, Volume 1. The Sandman Volume 2 as, quote, pornography and garbage. Um, and saying that, <laughs> yeah, saying that Associate Professor Ryan Bartlett should have stood up on the first day of class and warned us. And uh, the administrators responded with a strong statement in support of academic freedom. Although the president of the college did note that future syllabi for the graphic novel course will include a disclaimer so students have better understanding of the course contents. Oh my goodness. Now, as as having been someone who's read Fun Home, and I read it at the gym, and there were some times where I was on the bicycle, and I had to, like, turn my – I had to angle it and start so that people How didn't see How can you read what, while working out? Wow. Well, just on the on the bicycle. But um, I, I, uh, I did have to angle it so people couldn't see because there are some scandalous images there. I, I think it comes down to uh, all those things are, like, very different. Like, they're different from the norm, mm-hmm. and perhaps that girl is unable to look outside of the norm of her little mm-hmm. bubble. That's possible. What was the – I've not read Sandman, so I've read three of those four. What would you? What is scandalous about Sandman? I know that why the last ma- – I mean, there is nudity and there's some language yeah. in why. I really like that Here. series, actually. I highly recommend that. But what about Sandman? I read Sandman, like, 15 I, – I, I'm due for a reread on Sandman. So it's been a long time. I want to say it was a suggestion for mature readers books. So I want to say that there were mature themes and perhaps some nudity here and there. Okay. okay. Um, yeah. So I, I, I don't know off the top of my head. Yeah. So, sure. but, but there is comics um, just to kind of put a pin in it, uh, put a kind of a, a kind of, finer point on it comics do have this weird scrutiny about them lately because they have come this medium has come such a long way mm-hmm. and and i'm not disparaging superhero comics by any means because we both are huge superhero people but that's the basic when people say comic books they think of superheroes and they think of that being lighter fair like something you'd see on the super friends or right, something right. And even superhero comics are a lot more serious than they mm-hmm. used to be. And and so when you see the medium being used in a way like this, or actually I was I was doing a, a, a thing on comics this morning in my advanced English class, and I also brought up the Raina, Tel- Raina Telgemeier, I think that's how you pronounce her last name, graphic novel drama, which is one of them, which was a couple of years ago one of the top challenged graphic novels in the country, only because it had a gay character. And one of my one of my students who's read drama was like, "What the heck? There's no like, there's one kiss in the entire graphic novel, and it's a girl kissing a boy." And I said, "You know what? I was thinking about this, and I was wondering because I I reread drama the other day, and I was like, I was why is this so controversial? And I realized that the the the, the two or so gay characters were presented in a way that was completely, for lack of a better word, normal. They seem very much like a couple of like the the way that that the relationships and and whatever was dealt with was it was just very straightforward and matter of fact and it's like you know they were gay and it's like okay they like boys and they're middle school boys and they're 
you know, and the story wasn't about them anyway. It was just a side thing. And she has friends and she's kind of, you know, discovering things and there's nothing explicit about it. And it's a very cute thing. But, but I was wondering if like people get freaked out when they see something like that presented in a way that's very kind of every day. Because to them, it's like, oh my God, this has been accepted as normal now, and 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 it, with with something like this, where you have a religion, where you have, and and I think I I tend to agree with you, where it's more socio political than it is religious, um, in her presentation. I love how she it's, at six years old she says she was a she thought she was a prophet, yeah, and she strikes me as like she reminds me of like six year old me and like other people I knew like when we were in Sunday school and like we mm-hmm. first started to learn these things and all of a sudden we're like, yeah, I know everything about Jesus and you know, because like you because you were just it's that's how you are when you're like first learning a subject you know, it's like I know everything, you know, and yeah. I'll read the story like over and over and over again and you know. Here's like all these facts I know, and it's like you know, and 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 some people grow up to really continue on that path, and some people grow up to completely abandon it, and then there are the people in the middle. So like we all kind of vary in our. By the time you hit the age that she was probably writing this, which was in her twenties, I believe, where um you know, or especially when she goes through being a teenager, like you know, you sometimes do take a lot of different turns in terms of your faith. And I actually did appreciate this about this because it was, um, her parents were maybe were politically involved and they were religious. And that, that showed her as somebody who was conflict. I want to say conflicted in some way or another too. Mm -hmm. But I said, if you're going in and you're going into this with a lens of Islamophobia in your head, you're never going to see that. Yeah, absolutely. Who is the intended audience? Are Westerners the intended audience in particular, people from the United States? I don't want to say that because that makes me sound (laughs) self-centered, you know, like, of course it was. I think it works well for a Western audience Mm -hmm. um, because I think you're getting a a serious education. You're getting a lot of insight out of it. You're also getting a very good story out of it, too. And I don't want to downplay that at all. This is a really fascinating story. It's a really gripping story. In addition to all of the socio-political things and all the learning about another culture and all the stuff I've already mentioned, it's a really good story. Mm-hmm. Um, I don't. I honestly don't know. I don't. I don't know if you can pinpoint it to like one type of person who is the intended audience, like whether they're Western or Middle Eastern or European or or, or whatever. If they're young, if they're old, um, I don't know what audience she had in mind. I do feel like it is Western, but I will broaden it and I will say, well, I'm going to have like several answers. <laughs> no, no, go ahead. So I will bro- I, I do think Westerners and I do think specific United States, I'll give evidence for why I believe that. But I think very broad, anyone who is not of this culture, because I think to a certain extent she's writing this to explain or show other people what it was like to live in this time. And to explain certain aspects of the culture, um, the social aspects, the political aspects in the late 70s and 80s to people who did not experience those firsthand. So I think anyone outside of Iran. And I think, you know, 
also I think anyone from Iran would would probably well I was going to say enjoy reading this but you know reading this would be able probably to match up their own experiences had they lived during that time I think it's also for the westerners and more specifically for the americans because there are some sections where she will Something will happen and she'll put it in terms or in context that would make sense for someone that's in the United States. Can't find the page right now. But the one where the prisoners were released, the, the, the air fighters were released, and their terms were that they heard the Islamic National The anthem. Iranian National Anthem. Correct, yeah. Iranian. And she likens it to, she says, basically our Star Spangled Banner. And so I okay. thought... Hmm, okay. There's also one image that has always gotten me, and I remember bringing this up to my professor, and I'm pretty sure she poo-pooed it and said it was there's probably nothing there. But on page 91, mm-hmm. where – oh, no, my light went off – where <laughs> Marjan is with her two, uh, I believe, her cousins there. L- yes. Look at the bedding. Oh, wow. I didn't notice that. And the bottom, I've, it's it's yeah. the bo- especially the bottom left panel where yeah. her bedspread yeah. is stripes, yeah. and the bedspread they're standing on is stars, mm-hmm. is white stars against right. a dark field. So I, I think my professor is just like whatever, you know. I, I think she maybe thought I was looking at it something, and and I wouldn't be able to explain it, but you know, for someone who is writing and illustrating their own story, every detail means something. Uh, I thoroughly believe this. And so I just feel like that that's something. I, I'm not sure what it could well, be, but, you know, and they're even talking about Star Wars yeah, uh, on that page. Yeah, I was about to say, you're talking about Star Wars, and these are the cousins who had a lot of money. Yeah, yep. Which is basically the Western, the whole reason why that revolution happened, right, is like they've been sort yeah. of... Yeah, uh, capitalism. Yeah, not liking it. So, ex- you know, that's why I think... To a certain extent, it is specifically catered to the United States. I'm, I'm sure she probably recognizes that we're the most ignorant of the group, and we need <laughs> we need a lesson. We need an education. Yeah, basically. So, yeah, I think that's um, a great point. I, that that's just me, though. But those are just two specific moments that I, I sort of stood back and I was like, well, you know, you're comparing your Islamic national anthem to Star Spangled Banner, and that would in no way relate to any of the other peoples. Um, so, and and I don't know what the translation because obviously she knows French. I think that's yeah. her main, her second language there. Mm-hmm. Um, so I don't know if maybe it would be in in the French. Perhaps it would be their national anthem, whatever it were called. I'd have to do research on that, and perhaps this is just because it's... But, I mean, English, I mean, this could pop up in the UK. It doesn't say anything about, you know, (laughs) their national anthem, so, yeah. yeah. There you go. Mm -hmm. Okay. No, I I agree with you. In fact, I thought that was a really good insight. That was something I completely missed. So, (laughs) so I don't have anything to add. (laughs) That's why I'm here. Yes, you are. As we we're starting to to wrap this up now, yes, coming towards the end, and I wanted to talk about when we were doing our synopsis. Of course, we had different section headings, and when you pick this up with the chapters or the section headings, it'll say uh, the title, and then there'll be a nice little image. Uh, like for uh-huh. example, I just turned to the key, so it's got the key in bold letters, and then an yeah. image of the key. So. Connecting that with my question, because you can discuss those title cards and images and what you think of it. But do you see this as a series of episodes 
that are separate, but they're all tied together with one narrative? Or do you think it's just one continuous and flowing? I think it's both. Okay. Um, I think that what it, a cop out. <laughs> no, I think I think the title cards help, but I think because she's covering such a large stretch of time, yeah, you know, like it, this isn't a memoir of like one year in her life, and where she's not relating. This isn't a novel where it takes place over a couple of days or something. This takes place over like the better part of a decade. And uh, so in order to get that, what's such a huge scope, and if you read both books together, it's even a longer period of time, um, making it episodic like this, Mm -hmm. uh, I think helps it flow better and helps it make it easier to follow. Yeah. Especially since so so much happens in that time. Yeah. Uh, To a certain extent, I almost liken it to, and I'm going to, I'll say this and then I'll have to explain because not everyone's in the know, of Gravity Falls, where Mm -hmm. each episode, you know, has its distinct (laughs) little charming (laughs) story, but there's also an overarching theme that's connecting all the the episodes in the season as well as in the series. And so for me, I feel like you could potentially, potentially pick up something and I just turn to the party, which is very, <laughs> a little scary because of all those dead people there at the big the top, and, and read it and see what's going on. Uh, and it could potentially stand on its own, but at the same time, I think there is context and everything that ties them all together. I think it flows really nicely. It was slightly jarring, and you could really only tell by the art that, oh, well, I guess it does tell you a little bit later, but it doesn't say one year later, where it leaps a year. Mm-hmm. You could only tell because she was clearly older, and then mm-hmm. soon after the, the veil happened, so you could tell that time had changed, but it's not like there was a one year later situation. Yeah. That was yeah. the only, uh, that'd be the only criticism I would have. But otherwise, I just feel like they're, they're it's, it's a little bit episodic. Um, or vignettes, and, and they sort of mm-hmm. all, all connect there. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Yeah. Want to talk, of course, about the art, yes. which I think goes, you know, with the title cards and everything, and specifically the use of black and white, because mm. that, that was her choice there, uh, to my knowledge. It hasn't been no colors. No. Um, and then the panels, which, you know, could be distinct or not, are separated from each other, so there's no touching. There's usually a, a border and then nice little spacing. Uh, so what did you think about it? It sounds like now now we've gotten to in the actual like comic discussion. Uh, what did you think about the art and um, how it's, I guess, the, the, black and, the choice of black and white and then that the panels aren't touching if, if you felt like that has any impact on anything? Well, okay. First yeah? of all, Uh-oh. as a former yearbook advisor... I always appreciate the fact when there are pica spaces between photographs. Oh, okay. And, Is that what this called? Well, on the yearbook page, it was there was a pica. It was a little part of that grid on like InDesign. Is a pica, so I always be like, watch your picas. You got to put make sure there's picas between it, and then the space flows, and there's even flow of the space out. There's no trapped white space on the page. Mm-hmm. So thank you. No, you know what the funny thing was is I barely noticed the panels are separated because I read so many old comic books where the panels are separated uh, in a nine true. panel grid that it never yeah. really struck me as odd. Okay. And the same thing with uh, with your average comic strip nowadays. There are some still some comic strips where the panels are separated. Um, so that 
didn't stick out to me. I do notice that there aren't many splash, if at all, any real splash pages. Maybe a couple of big panels here and there, mm-hmm. but she really does stick to the seven, eight, nine panel grid. Uh, and what that does for this is that makes this a very, for a graphic novel, this is a dense read. Oh, yeah. yeah. Uh, because you read, like I mentioned, Marina Telgemeier's drama. I read that in like an hour, uh, two hours. Or so. It's 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 long, but it's it's very you know it goes very very quick. And you and I read a lot of modern comics, and mm-hmm. you can read them. You can I can go to my store, get half my pull list, and read it within an hour. This is more on the level of something like a Watchmen, where you really do find yourself even on a reread, kind of like pouring over some of the pages and taking your time because there's a lot of story contained within it. And and the art really, really complements mm-hmm. that story. Um, I like the stark black and white. Mm-hmm. I like the fact that she's not going for visual accuracy mm-hmm. if she's not insisting that she's giving you every single accurate detail of everything you know like she's not coming at this from a historian she's coming at this from a point of view as a storyteller so she's using her art to tell the story as opposed to relate the historical event and um, I really like her art style I think it really fits the um, I think it really fits the uh, the narrative very well mm-hmm. she I, I always find it interesting that she makes the adults and some of the children distinctive Yet there's this there's this purpose similarity between all of them when they're all wearing the veil, right? That I think is very uh, is done a very clever way. Mm-hmm. I like that the panels are separate. Now I don't know what her intent was, and perhaps she was influenced by older comics as well. But for me, it makes every panel distinct and important, as if it's its own little story. Mm. So it's just you know. Obviously, you wouldn't be able to just look at something and then, oh, I understand. But I just yeah. feel like looking at one panel, there's something to be said in every one that's important and it could be, impact the rest of the story. And so that's why I like that they're distinct and not touching. Mm-hmm. As for the black and white, I think sometimes, you know, I, I really like black and white. I think that sometimes people use color because it's like, ooh, color. But you can get into trouble, you know, Some I think less is more often helps. Yes. And she does really wonderful things. I'm looking at page 103 with the, um, when they're in the, the storm cellar and the light bulb is dancing around. And so you, it, it's very dark. And you can see that the light bulb is dancing around because of her explosions. And just, she is so artistic. I guess that's a cliche. But she just is masterful in her use of two colors. And I think, you know, why add more when you are able to do what you're doing right here? So I very much like that. I like how sometimes people bleed into the background um, or vice mm-hmm. versa. The background bleeds into them. So I think it's uh, it's well done. <sighs> yeah. Yes. Yeah. Yeah, there's a simplicity to her artwork that works mm-hmm. so well. Yeah. In this, in this. And I, I find myself, as you were talking, I just find myself flipping through the book and just looking at the various panels and you're right. She does yep. not waste a single inch yeah. of space in this book. And yep. it's really, really good. Mm-hmm. All has a purpose. Yeah. Continue with the art. And I think also adding words back in, I want to talk about Satrapi's juxtaposition of humor and tragedy 
and realism and fantasy and whether you feel like this works and does it perhaps limit the impact of the subject matter so uh, as I was flipping through I uh, have two examples so on page 102 which was the key you have two large panels uh, just so just two panels on this page and the top panel you have all the young men with the keys around their neck all in silhouette being blown up and potentially uh, going to paradise, yes. of course, right? Uh, and then below it, you have Marjan with a bunch of uh, kids dancing. They, they went to a party. The last line she says in that is, I was looking sharp. So obviously they're having fun while people are dying on the battlefield. Mm-hmm. Um, so there's the, I guess, the humor tragedy or just the, the good times and the tragedy. And then page 115 just thinking about her being a child and taking things literally you have this guy and his veins are being uh the blood is being injected into society right because that's one of the uh the images that yeah he saw uh that to die a martyr is to inject blood into the veins of society so another absurd image potentially and that's like fantastical but it's also connecting to this real idea of what uh, this revolution and, and what um, the religious leaders are, are saying about martyrs and trying to get people to believe. So do you think these images and these words and, and mixing these two, I guess, feelings or I don't know what is a good way to describe those, does it work mixing them together? And do you think that seeing these, seeing that man cut up absurdly like that uh, as if he were a doll or something being does it limit the impact of the subject matter no because if you're look i i was thinking about how you're looking at it from the point of view of a kid mm-hmm. and i'm looking i'm actually on page 51 is mm-hmm. the um is the page 51 or 52 or the or right, yeah, yeah. the man the man cut up and 51 shows like the horrific yeah. torture he undergoes, the iron and the lashes and stuff. Mm-hmm. And she could picture that. And then the, the cutting up, like she is really young at that point. So mm-hmm. she doesn't have a context for what a mutilated body looks like. So it is absurd. But at the same time, since it is the perspective of a young child, it makes total sense. So actually, I think that helps you identify with the character more. Mm-hmm. And then – the other two things with the key, I like the juxtaposition of her punk rock party with this like abstract looking depiction, violent depiction, mm-hmm. less cartoonish depiction of this explosion with these men in the keys. And then this, I don't know if she's being satirical or what with a, what's basically a propagandistic slogan. Yeah. You know the the propaganda and and, and so I I think it actually it actually works because she's trying to she is trying to as a young narrator grapple with it with the abstract at, a, at an age where she doesn't necessarily know the abstract yeah. as well as as somebody who's much older would yeah. and I think you you in order to do this and then balancing humor with tragedy you have to have a very deft hand to mm-hmm. pull it off and I think mm-hmm. she I personally think she does mm-hmm. yeah I think it. It definitely comes down to obviously being in the perspective of a child. And and I think it works because I think if it were any other writer or perspective that you'd be like, why? Why is this mm-hmm. person think that they're actually draining blood like that? Uh, another image I saw was 89. Uh, not necessarily. Well, I guess it's 
maybe the fantasy with the realism there, but um, the car is being engulfed by flames, but it also looks like uh, traffic. And it's basically, yeah. it's talking about the people fleeing, but they're fleeing because of the Iraqi missiles. I think the juxtaposition works really well. I think there are some times that it heightens what's happening, uh, for me anyways. I, I, mm-hmm. I don't think it limits the impact of the subject matter. Per- perhaps, you know, the cutting of the man, a little bit because he does look like a doll, but then, like, his face, though, you look at it, and you're like, oh, that's actually pretty disturbing. Yeah. But, um, you know, just like him in, in little pieces. But I think in, she doesn't need to be gruesome about it because I think we, we get the idea. But the that one with, yeah, the killing and, and all those, those poor boys being martyred versus... Yeah. Marjan having a, a fun time. I think it also shows how disconnected she was from that because, you know, in the beginning she very much saw that she was apart, I think, from many people in society. They had a car. That was a big point. Um, yeah. And then her housekeeper and, and learning that one must stay with one social class. So I think showing that party, you can see that clearly she's on a different um, end of the spectrum of, of other people because those young men that were killed were on the lower end of the uh, of society. So I, I think it, it works well and it works best because it is uh, childlike. I can't recall if that continues, this juxtaposition, in book two because I, I think it would have to change to a certain extent and it could have yeah. been childlike and it's, yeah but I think it works. Well. Agreed. Yeah. I don't know personally either about part two. We'll have to, yeah. I'll have to go back and read it. And I like how, uh, when her uh, uncle Anush is talking about, um, him being in disguise, like she, I guess just comes up with this idea of what the guy in the disguise would look like. And it looks like, mm-hmm. <laughs> I mean, he's got like a, a flower shirt on and a beard. and these Yeah. Glasses on page That's 60. a funny scene to me he, because he looks funny. ridiculous. He does look ridiculous. And so that, yeah. and I mean, it's, <laughs> yeah, that and her father smuggling the Kim Wilde and oh Iron Maiden goodness. posters, it's her mother's, yeah. Yeah, her mother sews the posters into yeah. the lining of his jacket, so he has this like big, huge rectangle of yeah. a of a coat. Yeah. That's pretty funny to me. That and may be funny. Child. Yeah, and they go up to the customs officer, I guess. Yeah. probably a little heavier than just customs, but yeah. um, he says to her, "Stay calm," and she completely is. It's him who's freaking out. So yeah, very fun. Oh yeah, I forgot about fifteen page 15 where you have the people the specters but it's like flames as well as dead yes see yeah that kind of stuff it's haunting but it's like oh man goodness yeah just so definitely done definitely done Mm -hmm. yes um oh i did have a personal question to wind this up it's okay to ask you a personal question of course yes go ahead (laughs) sorry i had to get the specifics does your grandmother put flowers in her bra both of my all of my grandparents are no longer with us oh dear um my mom's mother passed away 20 years ago and my my dad's mother died eight years ago so i honestly have no idea now I just feel bad. Oh, don't worry. They've been gone for a long time. And my gra- my dad's mother lived to the age of 86. So okay. you know, she lived a long life. Yeah. It's, nobody was – and my, my my mom's mom was in her late 70s. So nobody uh, 
everybody lived a long life. No, I have no idea. I have no <laughs> idea. Although that was a that was a cute little moment too. It was a cute little moment. Yeah. Well, we're at that point in time where we ask the crucial question of: Would you teach it, or would you recommend it? I would definitely recommend it. I want to teach this in some way. Mm-hmm. I don't know where, how. Yeah. But I think it really is. It puts a really interesting light on a country, on a part of that country's history that we mm-hmm. really haven't, we really don't get. Mm-hmm. But I also think it's a really, really good demonstration of the potential and the ability of the comic medium. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, it, it is it, um, it is just an amazing graphic novel, yeah. and just the literary value of it alone makes me like I want to share this and I want to teach this. I would definitely need the right mature audience yeah. for it. Yeah. I think it would be well paired either with the historical background so that that there would be context there or pair it with other graphic novels that are based on actual historical events like the March, um, Mouse, things like that. Mm -hmm. So to have a nice – yeah, a course perhaps that's catered towards uh, this sort of thing. But it certainly deserves to be taught. I agree that I think it Mm -hmm. does need to be more mature audience even though it is from a perspective of a a child. I don't think you can teach it to middle schoolers. I think it does probably have to be high schoolers. And I think, you know, it gives graphic novel uh, a good name. <laughs> yeah, so it definitely it, does. You know, it's it's one of those. So I yeah, I definitely recommend right, cool. it as well. Is it feedback? Time? It is feedback time. Okay. We have some listener feedback and both of our listener feedbacks, I guess, is yep. from one of our super fans, Robert Ward. And we should call him like our scholastic book buddy. <laughs> what were those what are the scholastic, scholastic book club? Book I love those. Yeah. yeah. You should call him that. He should start his own thing. Him and Joe. Mm-hmm. When I initially started Rebecca, I was hot off the heels of the very first Perry Mason novel. Mm-hmm. I was skeptical about whether or not I would enjoy it since I never even heard of it, but glad to say I did. If this is a pun- <laughs> if if this is a punishment book, what does that say about me? It was a punishment for it was supposed to be a punishment Tom. for me, Robert, yeah. and it backfired. It did backfire. Don't worry, I have more. Anyways, yeah, I really enjoyed it, and while I was unable to read I Know Why the Cage Bird Sings at the time, so far I think I'm anticipating the style picks the most. Huzzah! Yeah, sure, sure. I just fell for this book hard and frequently thinking I couldn't finish it fast enough, in a good way. So far they have all been new and great reads for me. The following are a few thoughts on your episode about Rebecca. I was surprised by the protagonist of the story not given a name. Unlike you two, however, I just assumed that perhaps this was an attempt at creating a self-insertion character. Leaving her name absent, I thought Daphne might have been hoping female readers may use the opportunity to help imagine them selves in her place. There are several cases of terrible female protagonists in, <laughs> you, in books that get swept up by the rich and handsome oh, Tess of the Dreamer Mills while occasionally supernatural man. Oh boy! That's probably Twilight there. <laughs> I figured this could have been at least a partial reason. Oh sure, they're not nameless, but I figured there had to be at least one. It's always interesting when I give them more credit than someone else would. As for her wishy-washy nature, while the protagonist is problematic, I connected on a level and thought it was entirely acceptable. The supposition is that we follow a young woman being swept up by a semi-mysterious man who probably is supposed to be idealistic in some ways, and the shadow hanging over her and what is expected of her. 
I found this very sympathetic. The only time she lost me was when she went on Ms. Danvers' suggestion for the fancy dress ball. <laughs> that was just plain stupid. As she put it at one point, that's unfair. I try. I try every day. I relate to characters far more often if they tend to show depression slash anxiety issues, though I won't rule out I may just be justifying incorrectly to original intentions. If we were to label her as having such issues, does your opinion change at all of her as a purpose, purposely flawed character? Ms. Dan, Yeah, we could. Um, I thought that the bit about the narrator being a self-insertion character is something I hadn't third yeah. thought of. And I think that's a very, very interesting approach to it. And it's worth looking at. Um, it's possible, you know, that the they, Peter Parker. Of yeah. In a way, <laughs> um, the wishy washy thing, the, the anxiety, depression. I don't know if it uh, changes my opinion of her. But I can't remember how sympathetic I was or not to the character. I definitely felt bad for her yeah. compared to Mrs. Danvers. Who's in the next paragraph of Robert's email? Um, I don't know. Does your opinion change at all if if think, if you are looking at through the lens of depression or anxiety? Yeah. Well, I didn't think. I don't think I thought poorly of her. Yeah. In general, I don't know if I depression or anxiety. I don't know if I see that in her. I think I see her as a very uh, introverted person, but I also see her as someone that people put their own feelings on. So they look at her mm -hmm. and they're like, oh, she's a shy person. And so then she's getting all of this of like, I'm shy, I'm shy from other people that she thinks, oh, well, I yeah. must be shy. Whereas I think she's just content with, sit you know, kind of like I am, right? I'm just content with sitting there and listening to people, you know, and they're talking and they think that I should be talking to. So I don't, I don't know if, uh, well, she's got anxiety issues living in that house for sure. But she, I think up till then. She's got self-esteem issues though. Uh, yeah. That was something I think I remember talking about right. and I, I see that and that might tie into something like depression, anxiety, Unfortunately, my, my personal experience with depression and anxiety is here and there. Like, it's, I don't want to go too far into discussing it in terms of Rebecca because I don't feel qualified enough to make the judgment. Mm -hmm. You know? Yeah. Like, I, I, if I feel like, say, I don't want to sound presumptuous. You know, that like, oh, I know exactly what's going on with her. But I definitely see a self-esteem problem yeah. there that I de definitely be tied to something like depression and anxiety. Yeah. It is interesting to, to put modern psychology to a novel that's much older now that we have a better understanding a lot of a lot of these, uh, these psychological issues. Yeah, and I mean, if she does have those, I, I think that how could you not feel even yeah. more sympathetic towards her? Then perhaps yeah. uh, we already do. So yeah, all right, Mrs. Danvers. Yeah, Ms. Danvers, the character you love to hate. More than once, I found myself using expletive language and hoping mm. someone would just throttle the life out of her already. It's always refreshing to have a mean character that is unapologetically mean. Oh, sure, it's not unheard of that the help could sometimes live vicariously through their master in stories like this. Thus, she is actually a rather psychologically damaged person that needs help. But screw it, what a bleeping bleep. <laughs> Lastly, the feminist angle of Rebecca. It's hard to completely rule out the theory, but I don't think it was the intent. I can't say for sure what the intent was, but for once the reveal about Rebecca's true nature was made. It isn't pretty. Thus, it plays out more like an overblown stereotype of a feminist. It would be one thing 
if she was up front with Max from the beginning, but she wasn't. It also doesn't say much when she manipulates and blackmails people. Even given the time, I find it hard to justify a feminist to act as she had done. One example of her character that I think shows a more heartless approach than feminist belief in equality is her treatment of a horse. She is revealed to be cocky and shallow. It's not a case of being considered better, better than the norm, but rather everything must be under her will. She bloodily spurs the horse with the intent on utter domination, mm-hmm. and it's made to sound as though it goes far beyond breaking a horse. I suspect the horse memory was included to show how different and ruthless she was compared to valuing her sense of freedom. Okay. Yeah. I don't really have much else to add to that. I think that's a great yeah. insight. Yeah, and I was sort of against that feminist thing anyways yeah that quote that that person said i don't really view her as that i think that was just a way to like make her sympathetic and then when they say that she's the main character of the story i thought well the book is named after her but i don't necessarily yeah. agree with that so there you go so uh robert the, so that email was from around the time we had recorded the last episode and we had put it off How to this you? one and um well because robert had another email in the previous episode we were we were saving it. and then he sent us another email uh, really just the other day as of this recording it is Dear Stella and Tom. I can't believe I didn't think of it sooner, but I have a new question for you. Yay. I adore theater sturgeon and short stories. I remember fondly how much I loved E Pluribus Unicorn. <gasps> Unicorn when I first read it, which includes my favorite story, A Saucer of Loneliness, or how bowled over I was by the anthology Dangerous Minds as a whole when I tracked it down just because Sturgeon contributed to it. Do you have a favorite short story author or a single story? I'll let you go first because I have two or three that I can think of off the top of my head in terms of short stories and then like one author. So I'll let you go. My favorite short story author is Flannery O'Connor. Great choice. And uh, I'm trying to think of the one. Good Man is Hard to Find? trying to think if this is the one which is the one where the girl <laughs> has a leg that is wooden and then oh shoot i don't remember and he steals her leg in the end yeah that's not a good man it's hard to find no. um it's not no, the I, you save is no no i don't know oh it's good country oh people. yes good yes. country people and i think revelation might be another one where a woman okay. like looks up into the sky there are so many good ones mm-hmm. um Honestly, something I really love about her, which I feel like she's got a great connection with Marjan Satrapi, is her juxtaposition of uh, the beautiful with the grotesque and just like these really terrible mm-hmm. things happening. And then moments later, this really beautiful and glorious thing will happen. But there are some really great, yeah, good country people, a good man is hard to find, the life you save may be your own. And I think Revelation are like my top four there, but uh, cool. she is my favorite short story author. I do love Flannery O'Connor. I have to read more Flannery O'Connor. I'm going to give a quick shout out to Raymond Carver because I've been reading a lot of Raymond Carver lately. Uh, Cathedral is one of his best stories, and uh, I'm working my way through an anthology of his. Another another of my favorites uh, for short story three three that I that I teach <laughs> here and there in English that I, and I can't really separate the three of them. One is Ray Bradbury because he's got a few really really great short stories. The Velt is an amazing one. It's about this automated house and and the children get attached to this sort of virtual reality in their house and it's it's creepy sci-fi, almost horror type of stuff. Kurt Vonnegut, there's my favorite, there's like Harrison Bergeron, 
there, there's a Kurt Vonnegut short story anthology called Welcome to the Monkey House, which is which is worth reading. Uh, Harrison Bergeron is in there, as well as uh, one of my all-time favorite short stories, The Long Walk to Forever. One of my favorite, favorite, favorite short stories to teach was turned into an episode of Alfred Hitchcock Presents back into the 60s, back in the 60s. And it's called, uh, it is by Roald Dahl, and the story is called Lamb to the Slaughter. The story is about a woman who, whose husband comes home, and he tells her that he's leaving her, and she hits him over the head oh with a God. frozen leg of lamb and kills him, and then in a fit of irony, serves it to the police. It's a great, great piece. Serves him to the police? No, the leg of lamb. Oh, 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 and it ends like, with them eating the leg of lamb going okay. – it's them eating the leg of lamb going, well, it's murder, murder weapon has got to be somewhere on our premises, somewhere oh, in the premises. No. Might as well be right under our noses. It's a great irony piece. We will, we read it and then we watch the Alfred Hitchcock episode with Barbara Bell Geddes every year, and it's one of the stu- that my students remember. So Roald Dahl's Lamb to the Slaughter. Um, Vonnegut's Long Walk to Forever and Harrison Bergeron and then Ray Bradbury The Velt three sto- three four short stories that I can that I can recommend did they think that she did the murder she had established an alibi oh okay she, so they, they show her they show her in the story she fit yeah they show her in the story establishing an alibi and her husband was a cop so they all knew her it's a really well constructed short story so I might have a I may have a PDF of it I can send you just oh yeah it's a quick read. If I can find it, I'll send it your way. Sounds good. All right. We have an iTunes review as well. That's exciting. It's from Prof Prof. I think you served some time in Sing Sing with him recently. Yes. So by Professor Allen, he says, oh, my goodness. How many stars? Yeah, I think he gave us five stars. Well, gee. He maxed out on his stars. Okay. Despite the host's blatant lack of respect for Thomas Hardy. But it's funny because the host is apostrophe S, so clearly he's talking about you. <laughs> it's not host S apostrophe. Yeah, so and yet earlier in this very episode, you had a you had a snarky comment about Tessa the Durbervilles. Well, so. because she was, you know, taken for uh, a ride by uh, a rich man. So that fits that little thing that Robert was talking about. The jury's out um, here anyway. Yeah, whatever. But anyways, despite the host's singular, blatant lack of respect for Thomas Hardy, they nonetheless do an excellent job discussing, in a serious way, serious works of literature. We're serious, I didn't know. A must-listen podcast about must-read books. Thank you very much, Professor Allen. How much did you pay him for I that? I pay a quarter. <laughs> <laughs> That's all it's worth is a quarter. Checks in the mail. <laughs> well, now's the time of the episode we are, where we are shocked and awed at what Tom chooses for us to labor over. Okay. I had, I, I've been texting you a lot lately because I, I had a pick, Ugh. and then I read something else recently, and I was like – so I was going back and forth, going back and forth, going back and forth. And they were completely two different, two different things, like 400 years apart in terms of publication dates. And um, I went with a more modern one. Um, I thought with – for a couple of reasons. One, we did Persepolis with some more modern. So it's like, okay, we can stay in this sort of realm. It's a piece of modern young adult literature. It's something I just, I, I just finished reading in the last couple of weeks, and I couldn't put down. And I wanted to talk to somebody about it. And I know you read it earlier this year because oh. it's on your Goodreads list. Okay. <laughs> uh oh. So 
we are going to go with a young adult teen angst and romance novel. Oh, boy. And that will be... Eleanor and Park. Eleanor and Park. (laughs) You know, (laughs) irony of irony, besides, you know, my goodness, what a long backstory it was to choosing that book. But irony of irony is, I just put that on my literature recommendation this month for the show, because I forgot, I think, to talk about it. And I said, you know what? I think Tom would like this, because this is like the type of pop culture he's into. So and and funny. and I had a couple of the students had recommended it to me, and I noticed it was on your list, so I, I it was it had been on hold, yeah. and it finally like rotated up to my hold, you know, where I got a copy of uh-huh. it at the library. So I picked it up and I read it, and I was like, I just I really wanted to talk about it. So yes, yeah, so we're going to cover Eleanor Park. Wow, it's uh, <laughs> well, we, we I I can't we shouldn't spoil. <laughs> no, no, no. Yeah, we won't spoil. We won't spoil. In fact, won't spoil. I think we'll, yeah. we'll 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 end it here because it's getting late for both of us, and yeah, uh, it's school night. So. Okay. Well, until next time, may your Oreos never get soggy. Yeah, that happens to me a lot. I sp- I, I hold them in the milk too much. Too much. I, I, sometimes my timing's off. Too much. Too much. You're like that guy in the bathtub. Yeah, too wrinkly. wrinkly. Yep. All right. Good night, everybody. Good night. Mom, 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 come on, you have to give me 50 tomans. Calm down. What for, honey? Don't let's tell me some guys are selling cassettes on Gandhi Avenue. And your Bee Gees tapes? Mom, the Bee Gees are totally lame. Stevie Wonder. Julio Iglesias. Pink Floyd. Jacko Maxson. Nail polish, lipstick, playing cards. Iron Maiden. <gasps> Hey, how much do you want for it? 90 tomans. 50. 60. 50. 60. 50. 50. Hey, you, what kind of a get-up is that? What's with the punk shoes, huh? What punk shoes, ma'am? Those punk shoes. But they're sneakers. This outfit, it's punk. They're high tops. I'm on the basketball team at my school. Then what's this on the back of your jacket? And what's this, I see, Michael Jackson? The ultimate symbol of Western decadence. No, that's not him. It's, uh, it's, it's Malcolm X. Nice try. That's Michael Jackson. Lower your scarf, you slut. That's it. Save your excuses for the committee. I'm so sorry. I won't do it anymore. Please, ma'am. My mother's dead. My evil stepmother is extremely strict, and if I don't go home this second, she'll kill me, and and she'll burn me with the iron and force my father to put me in an orphanage. (laughs) Please, I'm begging you. Take pity on me. (laughs) Take pity on me. I'm begging you. (laughs) Please take pity on me. Thanks for listening to Required Reading with Tom and Stella, which is brought to you by two true freaks. That's two true freaks. If you're interested in learning more about the books we've read or want to comment on the episode, follow us on Facebook at facebook.com slash required reading with Tom and Stella. If you would like to email us to comment on the episode or continue our discussion, you can reach us at requiredreadingcast at gmail.com. We will read every email we get on future episodes. We're looking for more visibility, so if you liked this episode or the show in general, why not leave us a review on iTunes? If you're interested in following along with the books we read, you can do that and support us at the same time. Just go to twotruefreaks.com, click the Amazon.com link. Every purchase you make will go to support us and the other TTF podcasts. It costs you nothing extra, but it really helps us out.
Thanks again for listening and come back next month for our next episode. Kidding me. Huh? 
Yo, Seabeth, are you seriously pulling this pure of heart scam again? That is messed up, man. Wait, scam? Kid, unicorns can't see into your heart. All our dumb horns can do is glow, point towards the nearest rainbow, and play rave music. Yeah, the whole pure of heart racket is just a line we use to get humans to leave us alone. Guys, shut up. All this time, all this time I thought I was a bad person. But you're even worse than I am! <gasps> okay, fine. So you learned our secret. We're jerks, okay? We have more hair than we know what to do with, and we keep it to ourselves just to take humans off. What are you going to do about it? It's a fight you want! Well, then it's a fight you're gonna-